Hello, everybody, and welcome to Friends of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. Welcome to the year 2021. I am your host, Brad Whipple. Happy New Year. So happy you're all joining us today on the show because we are talking about Star Wars, the High Republic. The day has finally come. We are taking our first steps into a larger world. And joining me on those first steps is none other than Sarah Haas. Sarah, glad you made it into the new year. Oh, me too. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) It was a long road, but we got here. You know, we're just trying our best, honestly. And uh, that's all we can really do. How how was your holiday season? Um, my holiday season was very low key. We kept it chill, and um, I wish the holiday season were longer so I got to listen to Christmas music longer. But I'll live. There will yeah. be more Christmases. It is true. It was a little different this year, but I got I got a couple good Star Wars goodies this year for yeah. for Christmas. Yeah. Nice. Well, folks, it's been uh, it's been a, it's been a weird week. It's been a little bit of a rough week. We are recording this on the Friday before you're listening to it, and uh, it's been a tough week for sure. You know, I think I think as uh, as Star Wars, you know, it's something that we can go to and escape from the problems of the world and kind of uh, take a moment to breathe a little bit. But I also think there's a an importance of addressing issues when they happen and uh, when things in our world affect real people, because as much as you can escape into a fictional reality of a, of a space movie, um, it is also a privilege to do so. And some people don't always have that option. And uh, the events of uh, this week are honestly just terrible. Yeah. Overall, Sarah, it's just not, not been a great week for our country whatsoever. No. Yeah. Um, democracy is fragile and we really all need to, do our best to keep it moving forward. You know, my best piece of advice is like when the news feels particularly heavy and we're doom scrolling and doom scrolling and doom scrolling on every possible media platform is to just reminder to take a moment for yourself. Remember to drink water, get a bite to eat and take a step away. Um, if that means, you know, just taking a quick shower, um, taking a short nap, like Make sure to take care of yourselves, and I hope that you all took care of yourselves this week, because I think that, especially when we're far away, is, is what we can do in the moment to, to care for ourselves, truly. Yeah, what happened this weekend in, in Washington, D.C. is honestly just the worst, one of the worst things I've seen in my own life, and I just it's still hard to wrap my head around, but we don't support that here whatsoever on the podcast we don't support that group um those ideals what they stand for it's uh it's fascist it's uh dangerous uh, to our democracy like sarah said democracy is fragile and we have to do everything in our power to uh, protect the one thing that our country is built around i would say if you support those who barged into our our congressional chamber and and did what they did uh this isn't the podcast for you and you shouldn't be listening to it uh, because we're very vocal about these things and we feel you know it's our duty to uh, to bring it up and just let you know that that's not what we tolerate around here and uh we won't we won't stand for it basically so we want to speak our minds before we talk about this book because uh, it's been on everybody's mind this week and it's really hard to uh, get away from it and to ignore that it's happening yeah. Yeah. And while I definitely think it's important to take care of ourselves and, you know, spend time 
on ourselves in during this time it doesn't mean we get to just run away from it because these are real problems that are going to continue to happen um to some degree because now that this has occurred you know it's kind of becoming a part of our political system anyway a marriage plan politics aside take care of yourselves no matter where you are in the world if you haven't gotten a bite to eat today or drink some water or please do so please hydrate (laughs) brush your hair or you know done something for yourself today please do that um because you deserve it that's the 2021 energy you need right now is self-care and kindness to yourself so that's the energy we're going into light of the jedi with yeah we're here to bring you the fun now and uh, again with all of that aside and just letting you know where we stand as a podcast now we want to take you on a little adventure 200 years sent before the phantom menace and discuss Light of the Jedi by Charles Soule. It's the very first book alongside Justina Ireland's A Test of Courage, which just released on January 5th. Sarah, it's so crazy to think that we have come all the way from Project Luminous to the uh, release date of The High Republic. It used to be so mysterious, and now it is in our hands. We are reading it. People are reacting to it. Um, People are finally starting to get into Star Wars publishing, which has always felt like such a niche community for so long. (laughs) And it's becoming more mainstream in a way, which I'm just like super thrilled about. Uh, It's not as much of a, (laughs) it's not as much as like a a small nerds club anymore. And I think that's always a good thing for publishing. Uh, The more attention it has, the better. I think Kevin Scott's comic sold like 200,000 issues, uh, which is like really incredible. That's like a, that's like a huge accomplishment right there. So, I mean, this thing is launching with a, a lot of attention, a lot of positivity, and I think people uh, from all ends of the spectrum are reacting great to it. And I will say, this book and this era, I promise you, it has something for everybody. I promise you it does. And I know there's a lot of hard feelings, um, you know, with how the Skywalker saga ended and, and just some handling around certain things, but let me tell you, Put your faith in Star Wars publishing because they have a very consistent track record and they've done some very, very great things and pushed out some very, very awesome stories from amazing and diverse people. And I'm just so excited that we are finally here. Uh, If you want to think about it in the timeline of things, Brad, from the announcement of Project Luminous to now, this book being out, that has been the duration of our friendship. Wow. It has. Like, yeah. Started from <laughs> I, the bottom. Now we're here. Exactly. Exactly. Now we get to talk about this book together. But um, the fact that we got the announcement of Project Luminous all the way back at Star Wars Celebration 2019, and now we're in 2021, and these books are finally out. It feels like forever. Thank God we made it through 2020 so we can get this new initiative because wow because wow um and i i also want to echo what brad is saying that you know if you're wanting to try something new within a galaxy far far away and you felt perhaps burned by the skywalker saga or are ready to move on or um you know just want a different timeline some different characters you don't know yet and right are ready to dive into give it a shot because there is there is something for everyone. And these books are all so different. I mean, obviously, they take place during the same time period. They feature some of the similar characters. But from what I've already read, like, the, the tones are different. The, 
the emotions are different, um, the storylines are different. Uh, even though they have this big interconnected model, there is something for everyone. Whether you love ships, whether they be, you know, room fly, you know, wish through the air, or like romantic ships, or kissy kissy. Um, or if you like, <laughs> if you like um, the force, uh, or if you like monsters or villains, like there is something there. Or you just like politics, like there's something there there's something there it's really exciting to to feel so like reinvigorated by star wars and i hope that um you know fans like myself who who were feeling bummed <laughs> majorly bummed after uh the rise of skywalker are feeling really excited about this yeah the tank has been refueled uh for me certainly i feel very hopeful for the future of stories and i'm like listen if we just sit in this era and bake in it for a while i am just I am great. And we had that big panel last week showcasing all of the new books that are coming out soon. We're getting a manga, graphic novel. There's just so much stuff coming in 2021. Finally going to hit my Goodreads goal for once, let me tell you. Uh, it's going to be a, a site long remembered for me um, because I just, I, I'm terrible at that. <laughs> but yeah, I really do think that this is a, a great era of storytelling. And we got socks, Sarah. You, we ordered that deluxe oh, edition God. we're getting <laughs> high republic socks very soon in the mail very exciting stuff i'm literally so excited <laughs> like like i if there's two things i love in this world it's socks and enamel pins and that might make me really weird or maybe all of the listeners out there are also socks and enamel pins kind of people. If that's you, oh my god, let me know. <laughs> Let's talk about how <laughs> awesome socks are. But um when i saw that I literally could not pass it up. I was like, I need both of these things. Yes, I already have this book, but like, I will get another <laughs> for <Yeah>. the socks. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just over the moon about it. But how today's episode is going to work is we are going to start with our non-spoiler review. So that's going to be us mainly talking about the plot, the pacing structure, kind of what we liked about the book, all those sorts of things. So if you're trying to figure out if Light of the Jedi specifically is something that you want to buy, we're going to give you the overview of maybe why you should. And I would say if you also want a good overview of the High Republic, you should check out our episode, uh, our last episode with Lipstick and Lightsabers, where we previewed the samplers that are available. So, um, you know, if you hear our non-spoiler review, there still are samples out there that you can read. And uh, that's before you invest money into the book. And that was a really fun episode to get kind of all you need to know about the High Republic. As we close out on our non-spoiler review, we're going to go full spoilers. So we're going to talk about the larger picture of the High Republic, what the galaxy and the Republic itself looks like. We're going to talk all about the Jedi because it is Light of the Jedi. And there's a lot to say about this, this group of, of uh, peacekeepers, let's say. And we're going to close out by talking about the newest villains in this book as well, and then previewing what's to come in the future of the High Republic, because I think uh, there are some things on the horizon um, where there might not be a horizon, as uh, K2SO has said, uh, infamously. Sad. <laughs> so Don't remind me. <laughs> so we are going to start with our non-spoiler review of Light of the Jedi by Charles Soule. I will put timestamps in the description of this episode just so you know where to cut yourself off and not get spoiled for anything. So Sarah, I want to start with you. What did you think of the book uh, Light of the Jedi by Charles Soule? Oh my gosh. Um, where, do I, where do I even start? 
Light of the Jedi is thrilling. And I and I'm gonna give credit to Scavengers Horde because they said it first. And um I'm just taking this word because it, you know, it's very concise. But Light of the Jedi is cinematic. When I finished this book initially, I was like, oh gosh, I felt like I was watching a thrilling like science fiction show or you know, space opera show. And it really feels like that. It's fast paced, it's big and bold and new and fresh and such fun. I I loved it. It exceeded my expectations. And I'm somebody who was initially cynical when I learned that it was going to be a Jedi related project. I th- said to myself, oh, you know, more more the Jedi, but it turns out I'm just cynical about the order. I love Jedi themselves. I love every single one of the Jedi. We'll we'll get into it. Um but um it's it's really thrilling. And I think it's very different from the other Star Wars novels we've gotten. It's very different from something that somebody like Alexander Freed has written that is, you know, a much slower pace. It's very different from, you know, Claudia Gray's writing, which is so character detailed um, and, and dives really into character specifically. It's so different from Timothy Zahn uh, or any of like the notable Star Wars authors that you've read something from. Uh, Charles Soule brings his own writing style to this book. He brings, I think, a really interesting perspective to kick off this whole project with. And I think he has done an excellent job. So, I mean, I, this is me giving a glowing review of this book. I think it's great. Yeah, I mean, the fact that you're such a huge fan of it, I, I remember you being sort of skeptical going into it. And then to come out of it, just feeling on cloud nine, I was very, very thrilled about that because it is a crazy book it it has very ambitious uh, it has a very ambitious vision and it achieves it and i don't think it's necessarily the type of intimate storytelling that you might get from a claudia gray or a christy golden or rebecca roanhorse mm-hmm. but the story still has so much heart mm-hmm. and it's almost game of thrones esque in a way where the points of views are changing so often and jumping from place to place and really giving you uh, a lot in in just a couple hundred pages. And for what the book tries to achieve in doing that, uh, I think this is really a world-building book. That is what Charles Soule was probably approached to do, was to say, hey, you have this book, please build out this, this High Republic era, show people what it's all about, from the Nile to the Jedi to the High, to the High Republic itself show us everything, mm-hmm. and also give us really great characters, really great moments, and a whole heck of a lot of heart. And I think the book does that perfectly. Um, and honestly, I wouldn't say it's like the best book to ever come out of Disney canon, but I really do think that it is up there. I mean, it's definitely something that I uh, will probably go back and reread at some point. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, actually. It's, it's paced very well. It leaves you in uh, such suspenseful moments and uh, hanging on the edge of your seat at the end of certain chapters. And it surprises you in a lot of ways. And I will say, too, if you like romance, there are romance elements to this book and I think to the High Republic in general. So if you're looking for that, I promise you, you will not be disappointed. I will not say why, because I would dare not spoil that for anybody. But you are going to love it in that respect, I promise. I will also say, if you listened to our preview with Lipstick and Lightsabers, 
we talked about this book and Into the Dark and A Test of Courage. And I think we were probably the most middle of the road, like optimistic, but like, I don't know if these eight chapters gave us the full look. And I will say that they didn't. It was worth reading on. Everything kind of clicked into place in a really meaningful way. And so if you listen to that episode and we're like, I don't know about this one, we were wrong. <laughs> uh, and and also, if you listen to that episode and saw our top fives, I don't know if I'm quite ready to like rethink my top five right now, but like I would rank this book among some of the books that I talked about in my top five. So this this is one that easily jumped into books that I know I'm going to be thinking about for a while. Mm-hmm. And like, again, just exceeding all expectations. So, I mean, just a really, really exciting start. Yeah, easily cracks the top 10 books of of the canon. And uh, it's just, you know, I, I think you're right in that we read those first eight chapters from the sampler and was like, it was a lot of new characters. Uh, it was just kind of the great disaster. It felt like over and over and over again. So I would say uh-huh. if you get into this book and you start to feel that way and you're like, oh, it just keeps continuing, there is a point, and I think it's right around when the sampler ends, like you said, where yeah. the great yeah. disaster finally ends and we get out of the thick of it. And you really get into like, okay, where do we go from here? How do we save the galaxy? How do we prevent something like this from happening again? And that's when it gets mm-hmm. really interesting because you see so many different parties kind of come together. You know, the Jedi teaming together with the Republic and what that looks like. Because we know from the prequel trilogy that the Jedi got themselves involved in military matters and that didn't necessarily uh, bode so well for them. So what does that look like? during a time when the Republic is pretty heavily armed with a whole military, a whole defense coalition. And then what does that look like up against an enemy that can almost pop in out of nowhere and you never can project where they're coming from? And that's the Nile. And the Nile are just so awesome. They are so cool. And they are just the tip of the iceberg. There is a whole, I was set, we were talking before we went on air when you think of like the best dinner of your life, I, I, I think the Nile are kind of like the appetizer, um, but we haven't gotten to the entree just yet. I think there are some darker things to come. I think there are some more villains that we haven't even experienced in the High Republic era. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's hinted at in this book necessarily. I'm just like, my mind is kind of thinking of all the possibilities and that's really cool to think about finally. Well, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that we know we're going to get introduced to more villains because it's been talked about openly in things like the panel and such things. So in if we're talking about food references, we might as well make it Olive Garden. And <laughs> the Nile uh, are the soup, salad, and breadsticks, mm. which are delicious. I mean, who does not love Very good. an Olive Garden breadstick? And I think some of the other villains will get in future books will be just as good as the soup salad and breadsticks but they're going to be that main course so i think there's just a lot in motion here always in motion the future is i think that's what we're getting with this book so yeah yeah absolutely so it's just really exciting to see uh how how passionate people are taking to this book and again it's just filled with some really heartful characters that i think um you will you will pick out somebody from light of the jedi that you really attach yourselves to and that's the cool part. And you'll just stand the heck out of them because why not? Life is short. Let's just stand our favorite characters and enjoy Star Wars because, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm feeling good about Star Wars for the first time in a, quite a long time, Sarah. 
and uh, I'm just here for uh, I'm here for a good time, not necessarily a long time every single time. So you know, I'm just I'm here to. <laughs> but enjoy. I hope I'm I'm I hope I, I'm here for a long yeah. time because this initiative is going to go into like 2025. Yeah, you know, I think I'm trying to approach it more uh, from that perspective of like I just want to be here for a good time. And yeah, like you said, hope. And I want this good time to go through 2025. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. But I, I do think there's a lot of good to come from the High Republic. And as we found out from the panel, the High Republic is split into three different phases. So phase one is Light of the Jedi, which we know is going to go into early 2022, I believe. Then phase two is Quest of the Jedi. Phase three is Trials of the Jedi. So uh, this is the long game for Lucasfilm Publishing. And I think that even gets me more excited because when you think about investing yourself uh, both monetarily, emotionally into these stories, you want to know it's going to pay off in some fashion. So to kind of have that timeline of like, okay, this is going to be a multi-year thing across many different platforms, um, maybe culminating with the Acolyte, you know, on Disney+. Plus. So, I mean, there's, there is a, a, a very imaginative spirit with this team uh, behind their High Republic. And I think that is what invests me because their passion makes me passionate. And it's very contagious every single time I watch them talk about it, honestly. Mm -hmm. So that is kind of our overall thoughts on the High Republic. I think it's a super positive and strong start for this new era and a very much needed uh, refreshing take on Star Wars to get away from the Skywalker saga. And even though there are elements that are shared with the prequel trilogy, I don't think they are distracting in this book. And I think actually they will add very richly to future stories. And I would just say have an open mind to what may yet be to come. So with that being said, Sarah, we're going to turn it over to our spoiler review of Light of the Jedi. So if you haven't read the book yet, now is the time to turn off. Go read it for yourself so we don't spoil it for you. And for all of you who've already read the book, stick around because we have much, much more to discuss. So I'm very excited. Yay. Sarah, why don't you tell our listeners how we've split this episode into four different parts? Four parts is a lot of parts, but we're here for the Many long parts. haul. Yeah, we're here for the long haul, just like the High Republic. So we're going to give them all their due. So here in this first part, we're going to talk about the larger picture, um, what's going on in the galaxy, the background, the setting, what has gotten us to where we are now at the time of the book. In part two. We're going to talk about the Jedi because they're the best. The Jedi. That's all I have to say about that. They're the best. Bye. Um, in part three, we are going to talk about the Nile because, wow, there's a lot happening there. And in part four, Brad has aptly titled it A Shadow Looms. We're going to talk about the future just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. A little bit of shadowy business L going on. A little bit of speculation, a little, little bit talking about the end, and what's to come. So this is a lot, lot going on, a lot going on, but we're, we're here for it. I'm super excited to get into it. So when we think of this book from a larger picture in the galaxy, and even just the story of Light of the Jedi and what this era really represents, I think when you look at the High Republic era, it is an era defined by a time of optimism. By a time of exploration, you have the Central High Republic run by Chancellor Lena So, who I'm absolutely in love with. I am just completely enamored by her. She is such a better Chancellor than Palpatine, let me tell you. And even uh, Valorum, honestly. Valorum was just trash. 
And this is a time when the Republic is finally starting to want to explore in the Outer Rim territories. And uh, I think that's really exciting. It's sort of this uh, almost like a manifest destiny in a way of of the Star Wars galaxy. The, the Republic, not as much of a of a spirit of like conquering, like I think in American history, where we just wanted to like conquer everything in the West. But I think it comes from more of a place of like unity. Um, but there is a little bit of an essence of like, you know, colonialism of is it the right thing for the Republic to to do this and expand into the Outer Rim? But when you think about the Outer Rim at this time, it is very dangerous. There's a lot of danger that that lurks there and is unknown. And I think what Lena so wants to do is make everybody feel safe, feel like they can communicate across different different sectors of the galaxy, uh, travel safely through hyperspace, not run into marauders. And that's where the Jedi come in. The Jedi are building outposts across the galaxy, and they are sort of the ones that are responding to these distress calls and uh, saving your ordinary citizens from, uh, you know, from the terrors and the dangers that lurk. But Sarah, what do you think of just this this galaxy in general and, and what the state of things looks like? It is a really interesting galaxy because we think about what you know, Lena So is doing with her great works in attempt to, you know, have everybody be respected, have everybody be peaceful, yada, yada. And, you know, you think that's really admirable and awesome and calming and utopian. And at the same time, we know that's not the case for the whole galaxy, uh, which is interesting. But um, I, I think the efforts that Lena is making to make this galaxy connected and um together as one and through her like we are all the republic slogan is super interesting and sets us up for a lot of potential successes and um expansion of the republic but also like very high highs lead to very low lows or or those things go hand in hand um so it's really interesting to see that this setup is so so different from the Republic of the prequel trilogy where everything is already pretty much falling to pieces. Yeah, I think it's a, the prequels are a much more disastrous Republic. I mean, you have the brink of civil war, basically. And this is a time of not, no civil wars happen. No wars are happening. There's no Sith. We are just riding the wave, Sarah. Surf's up, bro. Yeah, everything, everything is good. Shred the gnar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) Get your boogie boards out. Let's go. No, but what do you we think are, of... We are not surfers. No, I literally can't you can t- even. You can tell. You can t- I can do paddle boarding. Um, that's a fun activity. Oh. You know, you just stand, oh. gently row the waves. But Sarah, what did you think of the... That's... No, no, no. That's what the High Republic is like. It's all the paddle board. You're just yeah. like gently riding the waves. Yeah. You know, standing up on your feet, going with the flow. Yeah. And then the prequel trilogy is when the riptide comes in and you get pulled under your water and you try not to drown. Anyway, and you drown anyway. Yeah. Sarah, what did you think of the slogan "We are all the Republic?" Because for me, uh the first thing I always thought about was I am all the Jedi from The Rise of Skywalker. And everybody should know yeah. I absolutely hate that line. But <laughs> but I, I I thought I didn't come from that angle going into this book, but I kind of thought like, oh, it's a little cheesy, you know, it's a little it's a little cheesy. But by the time I got to the last part of the book, and you hear it for the final time in this book at a very specific moment in Lena so- So's own thoughts, um, I finally, like, kind of all clicked together. I was like, oh, 
that's it. That that's what it means. I understand it's it's this idea for for Lena that the galaxy has to work together and we can't solve problems individually. We have mm-hmm. to all come together because one person's problem is what invariably causes another person's problem, whether it's cultural, historical, economic, or, you know, related to military matters. It's it's all interconnected in a way. So if like mm-hmm. Lena So can make people believe in the one vision of the Republic that, you know, we are all the Republic. We are more than just ourselves and our own goals. Like if we can compromise with each other, if we can have this one idea, this one goal, this one sentiment, and we can share that, we are going to be so much better off that like, it's just, go- we're just going to ride these times as long as possible. And you know, it won't always be like that, but let's sure as hell try, you know? Yeah, I will say that, like, I definitely think that We Are All the Republic is cheesy. It is. When I yeah. initially saw those socks, I was like, what is, what is this? Like, why do they have these words on them? And it is cheesy, but that's kind of the point of it. Um, it is a very ideal situation, an ideal phrase. And Lena is really doing her best to make it possible. And it's so interesting when compared to my favorite Star Wars novel, you know, that I talked about in the previous episode, which is Bloodline, where there's the two factions, the populists and the centrists in the New Republic. And the populists, you know, want each world to kind of rule itself and the centrists want the central government. And what we have right now in the Republic is a clearly centrist point of view, centrist point of view, but with the idea that everybody has a seat at the table. So it's very, it is very like utopian and it feels a little, it feels a little hippy dippy, um, but <laughs> it, it kind of, it, it works. It works for the setup here and I get what she's going for and um, it's fascinating. Yeah. I want to talk about how she thinks she can achieve that vision. So do you want to tell our listeners about the great works and what your initial impressions of those are? Yeah, so when the first instance of the great works popped up, I highlighted those words and was like, what is this? <laughs> and we get a little bit of it throughout the book. We learn that it's like infrastructure, culture, back to cultivation, com relays, republic fairs, treaty no- negotiations, starlight beacon outposts or outposts like the starlight beacon. In an, in an attempt to like improve quality of life for people, bring the Republic to more people and bring people into the fold to have that same quality of life and really give people peace of mind through her projects. And again, like they're very, they're admirable. I I think you can have a conversation about the Starlight Beacons and colonialism and all that good stuff. And I think that is an important feature to consider when we're thinking about is Lena's vision tenable is it achievable and is it a moral good i i debatable mm-hmm. but i uh, i think that you know improving infrastructure improving culture and like bringing people together bringing people together and making people better through bacta and that sort of stuff is good and it's really interesting that she calls this her capital g capital w great works and it's really interesting that when they talk about this uh, in the panels and stuff, they talk about it like as if it were the Kennedy era in the White House. If you, this is, you know, U.S. politics here. Um, the, the beginning of the, the moon program when we started 
wanting to go to the moon in the beginning of the, the decade and ended up on the moon. And so there's a real sense of like idea cultivation to end product goal that there's that motivation where it's not abstract. It's like, let's make this a tangible thing that we can do now. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Yeah. And the, 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 yeah. And the connection to U.S. politics is interesting. <laughs> No, it is. I, we were listening to the panel and, and Charles Soule referred to it as, as Camelot, you know, Star Wars' version of Camelot. And Camelot is that era that, that Sarah is talking about. And that's, uh, it's infamously called that because, you know, when, when Kennedy passed away and Jackie Kennedy had this interview where she talked about how there was this line from the Lerner and Lowe musical to describe that Kennedy era. And it was, don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. And Jackie Kennedy always said that was JFK's favorite line. So they often refer to that era as Camelot. So to think of that, the Star Wars High Republic era in terms of Camelot, and to hear the idea of great works, I even thought back to, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the, in the 30s who had his, had his New Deal program, which was a bunch of different public work programs that helped to restore uh, American spirit, American hope, um, by saving the economy during are in the midst of the Great Depression and afterwards. And, uh, you know, whether or not there was some sort of cataclysmic event before the High Republic era, maybe it was the Great Sith War that is often mentioned throughout the book, this is really the Republic's chance to say, we have an opportunity right now to make future generations have a much easier time. And I think that's very inspirational to hear from Lena So because she's not as much focused on, like, what, the effects will be now like yes that is part of it but she's also very fixated i don't know if you noticed this sarah like on her legacy she brings it up like a ton throughout the book how she's like very focused on like what does her legacy look like her legacy will be the great works this is it like this is how she will be remembered and i think she cares more about how the republic will uh, prosper and continue into the future and i think much of what we see in the prequel trilogy is because of Lena So's great works. It's why we have. It's going to be why we have Bacta. Why hyperspace travel is possible uh, anywhere, pretty much. Why why communication is so easy across the galaxy. Like all these things are putting into motion what it's going to look like two hundred years. Two hundred years isn't really that far in the future in the Star Wars galaxy. It's pretty close, honestly. You know, and yeah, uh, it's incredible too that you know she she faces a pretty big amount of pressure. You know, the naysayers who say you know why don't we just focus on now why don't we why don't we save our money uh and and like just do what we can to get by right now and she's like no we have to do this like we have to come together so there's there's peace and prosperity i'm not just going to you know rule in my own self-interest and abuse my own office i want to rule for the people i want to show us that we can come together for good and uh that's why she that's why i love her i don't know it's just like a good leader and uh, I, I love, too, the fact that she has these, like, two lions that <laughs> come with her everywhere, Matari and Varu, who are Targans, and they have, like, low-level empathetic abilities, which she, you know, it's pretty unusual in a predator species, but they're, they're just giant cats, essentially. They're giant cats! Like, I love the, that. I saw that concept art, so if you haven't, listen, or listeners, if you have not seen that concept art, Lena, so it is not what I imagined them to look like, nor what I imagined her to look like, but it is fascinating. The cat, giant cat slash lion bodyguards, Targans are fairies, very weird. 
very weird thing. But um, again, it kind of builds builds the world in a very fascinating way. I think I'm just going to be like, hmm, that was interesting for the rest <laughs> of this podcast. I'm so sorry. Now, Sarah, what about the Starlight Beacon? I think that's really the, the central great work of this story. Do you want to tell us a, a little bit about that and what you thought of it? How, what do you think its use could be in, in the galaxy? Like, is it a good thing? Is it a symbol of positivity in the galaxy? Or could it be seen by some as sort of like a unattainable thing? Yeah, as I kind of hinted at a couple minutes ago, I'm kind of of two minds about it. On the one hand, it is super ambitious. It brings a lot of technology to the area. It presents itself as a place where people of different cultures can come and meet, where people from the Outer Rim can come and, like, there's this, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. I don't have the quote in front of me, but, like, there's this section of it where it projects and manifests, like, the environments of other planets. It is an attempt to bring people together and expose outer world outer rim worlds to the cultures plural and the worlds plural of the republic and so it kind of does this merging of the individuality of republic worlds alongside the central nature of the republic and i think it is very interesting like it's like it is made out of a particular steel that's going to boost communication power in the outer rim. And like, that's awesome. At the same time, if I were some rando on the outer rim, I'd probably not be thrilled about this. You know, probably it was in construction for a hot minute. But, you know, if I'm somebody in the outer rim who enjoys my small planet and my way of life and doesn't need anything beyond my community my surroundings um and my planet i'm probably not super thrilled about this and and so i think they're like or if i'm or if i'm like a space pirate or or any sort of part of the nile uh, yeah yeah if i'm if i'm part of the nile or, or any other space pirate or a no a, a ne'er do well i'm also not thrilled about this so i i think it's complicated you know um it feels, in a lot of ways, uh, kind of Trek to me. Um, you think about Federation worlds and non-Federation worlds uh, and who's a part of that system. And, and then, like, the whole mission of the Federation is to go out, or part of the mission of the Federation is to go out and seek new life and document new cultures and stuff like that. So I think um, it kind of relates to something I've already seen in other media in, like, a positive way. But it also can be a little messy. It could also can possibly be a little messy. I think it's going to be a little messy. If, it's, if it was going to exist and everything was going to be fine and dandy for the rest of the, the initiative, that would surprise me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the intent is good, but it's going to start causing problems because I think people are, are almost viewing it as an infringement on their, their way of life in the Outer Rim. Um, but at the same time, the way of life in the Outer Rim isn't great. It's, it's kind of chaotic. It's kind of full of marauders and pirates and raiders and that's kind of why they're there it's a, it's a it's partly a, a jedi outpost to you know listen for guidance from the force and also protect and it's also a republic embassy it's a it's a projection of security to ward off danger i mean it's 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 all of those things so yeah it is like i can kind of see it from both ways like i, I do see the value in it 
the, the value in it more so than the downside. Um, but there is both to it. You know, it's, it's kind of one of those, uh, political dealings of the, the old, you know, the high Republic era. And it's just like, uh, what does freedom actually look like? And, um, is the Republic, are we all really the Republic or is just putting an outpost somewhere saying we are all the Republic, you know, like, what is it going to actually look like now that at the end of the book, we've, we've had the ceremony for the opening of the starlight beacon. Like, you know, what's it going to look like in the next book in the rising storm by Kevin Scott? Like what, what is the starlight beacon going to represent once it is finally operational? Cause I think it's more about your actions and what you do with these things than the intent. Cause sometimes the impact might not match your intent and that's where you run into problems. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens and where this leads the Republic. Cause you know, I think one thing that really stuck out to me to kind of close out this conversation is, is Lena. So when she visits the, uh, the Umate, which is the tallest peak of the Minari range, it's like one of the, the last standing, uh, mountains of, as part of the, of Coruscant's original topography. It's this mountain structure. It's, it's become, you know, a passageway. It's, it's chambers. It means, it means a lot of different things, to different people, but to uh, to her, she sees it as a choice to stitch together the entire galaxy, but she also sees it as a thing of there is nothing so big it cannot be swallowed, nothing so strong it cannot be humbled, nothing so tall it cannot be made small, not a mountain and not the Republic. This means that failure is an option. It's the gravest option. If, if, if this fails, she says it's just going to be, quote, worlds alone in the dark. Very foreboding. And I think that's on very on purpose. You know, I think if the if the starlight beacon yeah. ever gets destroyed, if they put all their eggs in one basket with these great works and they don't turn out the way they want and they're kind of just sitting ducks after that. Yikes. There's a lot of danger here. Yeah. And considering the next book by uh, our, our good buddy, Kevin, is called The Rising Storm. It doesn't this one had an optimistic title, you know, like the Jedi is a good title. The Rising Storm is a little is yeah. a little darker middle chapter if I've ever heard a darker middle chapter title. And I do want to talk about that moment for just a second because um Umate, the, the tallest peak of the Minari Menonari so cool. range. I love so some Coruscant like, geography. Give it to me. <laughs> like you think about Coruscant and you think about the way that it has just been built upon built upon built upon built. When you think about that planet, you think about it is as the core of the galaxy, as the city planet. It is a, a city in itself. And um, to know that there's this more or less a park where one peak of this place shows up and nobody's just touched it is fascinating. Because it, I think on top of everything that is, you, you talked about, just says it just says you know I, I think about our own world it just says how close we can come to the brink of completely decimating something how close we can find ourselves to the brink and then yeah. not realize that we're there and i maybe you mentioned that in a better way than i just did but um no it's true like even though this thing this mountain has been preserved for generations it could just as easily easily be destroyed well it's not even that it's like that's all that's left yeah is one little mountain peak and it is we curious can come, we can it's it's like uh, you know you keep it's kind of like the overton window idea that like you keep normalizing other things until other things fall out of your window or 
even worse things keep getting in the window if you think about you know american politics and what we accept and what we don't accept in our discourse and that sort of stuff but like you get so far over for something like climate change or or humanity humanity the anthropocene i'm going real u.s american human right now but, um, but like you get into the anthropocene and like my favorite family farm was torn down and is now some cheap houses you know like how close we can get to to changing our landscape um without transforming it completely yeah like what do you what do you leave behind and if you think about the republic's transformation uh what does it look like now and what what is it going to look like in the future with all of these changes you know is it going to still be the republic it always was is it still going to be the high republic and i think that i think that's exactly i think you're (laughs) literally i think you're using it in the perfect analogy like the the ume is like exactly what the republic is going to become in the prequel trilogy there's going to be remnants of that high republic era still around but the tragedies and the uh the things that are happening that are going to dismantle the republic is like the rest of coruscant city kind of swallowing up that optimism that was once there and is now gone and is going to lead to the fall of the jedi and the fall of the republic you know it is just that idea that you go so far in one direction that you don't realize you've swallowed it all up until you've done it i guess that's what i'm attempting to get at i don't know if i've done a good job at that or not but um, no i mean i i, think I completely agree with you. you just kind of blew my mind actually when you put it when you when you uh analogize that mountain to like what the republic is uh and what it what it could end up being uh unintentionally it's yeah yeah so sarah let's get off coruscant which by the way i just have to say can you believe we're getting capital n new star wars content in coruscant can you just i love that for us prequel <laughs> renaissance please if you ever think of friends of the force prequel renaissance just think of us and think of that we love the prequels anyways let's go out of coruscant into the outer rim it's a very dangerous place it's, it's okay. ex- exciting yes. and it's deadly uh but more deadly uh than exciting in truth and it's a place where people can go to escape the laws of the Republic and uh, have a new life. And, uh, but it's still filled with predators everywhere. And I think that is kind of the, the, the gamble that you take by traveling to the Outer Rim. So we spend these first 120 pages in the Hetzel system. And this is where the Great mm-hmm. Disaster takes place. We later learn in the book that the Nile were the ones responsible for the Great Disaster because... As the legacy run was traveling through space, the Nile came across hyperspace. They came across it, across it, smashing into the legacy run and raining these pieces of the ship full of, of, of passengers uh, down across the Hetzel system. And um, the Hetzel system is one of my new favorite places. I feel like I always uh, attach myself to a new, a new place. I know in Shadowfall, I fr- I'm blanking on the name of the city right now, but... Um, like that whole planet used to be the old Coruscant. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, and like now Hetzel's my yeah. new my new love, right? And yes. uh, you know, it has the the two moons, the fruited and the rooted, which like Charles, thank you. But what's really cool about Hetzel is it's focused on agriculture. There's it, it exports food all over the outer rim, and it's also where Bacta's being created. It's gonna replace uh Juvan, which is the current uh the current medical treatment uh it's it's this new miracle replacement that everybody sees it as and it's it's growing here it's going to revolutionize medicine and 
they use every bit of Hetzel to its capacity to, to grow. And they, they have croplands on the rooftops. They have harvester droids, you know, floating among various towers and there's fruit vines hanging and there's rivers and lakes growing algae and water weeds. It's like a beautiful, serene, orange glow sort of place. It is just beautiful. And the tragedy that this thing has to happen to this wonderful system, this wonderful tri-sunned system. There's three suns. Take that, Tatooine. Incredible. Take that. Yeah. Think about those sunsets you can stare off into. Yeah. <laughs> Suck it, Luke Skywalker. That's right. <laughs> but was the Great Disaster what you expected it to be? You know, I thought it was, it was very tragic, too, to just see how uh, society responded to the Great Disaster because you have the, the sort of politics of it with Minister Eka who and he's like why can't we shoot these things down and they're like you didn't invest in the shoot down system and he's like shit and that's <laughs> pretty funny and uh and then you have society where it says quote some people ignored the warning false alarms had happened before true nothing had ever happened of the scale but but really that made it easier to dismiss the whole thing after all the entire system in danger it just wasn't possible end quote some people stayed in their homes and some people turned off their screens and went back to work. And the other people who wanted to get off planet and saw the red flags and wanted to get out of Dodge, um, they couldn't because traveling off world is an expense. It's usually only reserved for special occasions. And uh, really the only rich people are getting off planet. Ticket prices are skyrocketing to unattainable levels. It felt very COVID-like. It is so... <laughs> freaking weird that this book came out when it did because you see all the telltale signs of a disaster you know even in our real world there's still people who have said you know false alarms have happened before we don't need to prepare for this thing it's fine you know the uh the pandemic response uh, office or whatever it was called had got dismantled long before mm -hmm. january um could have been helpful this time around so there's uh there's all the telltale Perhaps. signs of a of a disaster striking and how we respond to it in this book that we've mm -hmm. seen in our own world. And I just thought it was really interesting how uh, we saw those two things and those, these two worlds of ours sort of blend together in a way that we could relate to. Did you get that impression as you read the great disaster? Cause I just did not expect it to like really hit me in a COVID sense. Yeah. I, I definitely got some of those vibes as well. And one of the things that I found really interesting, kind of going back to beginning of your talking about Hetzel is that, it um it is a bit of a workhorse planet it is not leisurely it is not a place you go to travel for vacation it is a planet that provides and it, it is a system that provides all sorts of agriculture they rotate the crops and are able to grow you know tons of different things every year that provide for the rest of you know the outer rim the republic and everybody in between. And so this system particularly is very, very, very important for that reason alone. And um, I definitely, when we talk about the society and the politics, I definitely felt that uh, relation to our current situation because it is a sense of like complacency, like, oh, it, it hasn't happened any time in the recent past. So why do we have to prepare for it now? Um, or like, why do we keep funneling money? into this when we could be doing x y and z and you know it just it it felt disappointing 
not in the sense that like I can't believe he'd write something like that but it felt a sense in the disappointing that like the leaders let down their people by not investing in those things that they were once investing in preparing for because by you know discontinuing an office by not putting funds into that plan that they were putting funds into they're doing disservices to all of their billions of citizens and that's what hit home the most is like those choices at the top because of their complacency affected real people in real time as this disaster was happening now this disaster was indeed a freak thing in a lot of ways but at the same time even freak things need responses yeah it's it is really fascinating and i think the what really struck me the most was sort of the class division that was happening you know the people i think there was the imagery oh my God, yes the imagery uh when Loden and bell zedifar get down there and there's like the high walls with the guards on top and there's a ship transport on the inside of the gates and all the people are like we can all fit on there just let us fly with you and they won't and i think this was very huh. purposeful wonder where i've seen that <laughs> very purposeful for charles you know even when you think of people getting really excellent medical care you know in a in a covid world and a lot of us out here are just trying to get by and you know uh, hospitals are running at capacity and ventilators aren't where they need to be and uh the medical workers are just working their asses off and it's tragic and uh we just don't have the resources that we need they're somewhere we just they're, they're they are they in a way feel like they're behind a locked gate guarded and it's just like yes but why why can't we have that why can't we be on the transport why can't you help us to the way we need you know and i think that was what really struck me but when you look at minister Eka, i think even though he didn't necessarily prepare for this completely well i think his decisions in the moment to be a leader uh is very in a stark contrast to uh the quote-unquote leaders i won't actually call him a leader because i don't think he is but the decisions mm-hmm. that have been made in our real world because minister Eka says you know as bad as things might be the longer you wait the worse they get so it's almost like he realizes he can't afford to look back at what decisions he made and didn't make or try to find out who he can blame it on uh it's just that you know this is uh this couldn't have been anticipated and at this point it's happening and i need to do everything i can to uh yeah. save a life you know and i think that was the the telltale sign of his leadership and you know yeah he made mistakes but he's reacting to it in real time and with the people in mind versus his reputation of what he didn't do versus his chances at office the next round you know it, it's a uh, it's a leader he's a leader yeah, and it also becomes a sense of, I can't look back and blame somebody now because I have to act in the moment. And if I don't act in the moment, it will fall to me. It will fall on me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's not, he's not to me, as much of a leader as somebody like Kevin Tarr, who, who really steps up. Yeah. Um, or, or, you know, Jorah or Avar or um, even whatever his name is. Um, Cor- Cor- Coronar? I keep thinking Corona, but it's <laughs> Coronara, Coronara, oh, Cronara, Cronara. I yeah. don't know. Um, that that name got me because it reminded me of Corona. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Admiral you know, I Corona. Think 
<laughs> yeah, I think their leadership is all like really admirable during this time. And uh, whereas Eka is doing having to do much more scrambling in order to get things on the, the right page. Yeah. So we'll talk more about Kevin Tarr later on. I have a lot to say about him because I think he's actually one of my favorite characters from this book and I hope he returns. Let's jump to Avar Chris. So the great disaster's happening. There's a lot of shit going down and who else to come to the rescue than the Jedi. And when we talk about Avar Chris and the central characters of this book, I think she is the the central character of this book. You know, she is front and center on the cover. Uh, I, I'm very happy she's the central figure. She's very fascinating. She is kind of like the Yoda of the High Republic time in a way. And uh, she sees the Force as a song. You know, she can kind of detect natural bonds between Force users and, and utilize them as a, as a communication tool. And it's not necessarily something that's super accurate, but it's more of a, like, a detect sensations and detect locations. And it's when the Jedi hear her song, it's like a, a feeling that they have rather than specifics. You know, they can sense the dangers coming. They might not know what the danger is, though, right? Uh, what did you think of, of Avar Chris and uh, just the fact that she shows up to the Hetzel system? She's ready to she's ready to fight. She's ready to save some lives. And uh, this will also lead us. Uh, this will close out part one for us and into part two as we discuss more of the Jedi. You mean my gorgeous Jedi queen, Avar Jedi <laughs> Master Avar Chris? I would, I'd love her. I would die for her. Um, she is such a fascinating figure, and I mean, we could talk about characters in this book, and, and we're gonna talk about characters in this book. But she sticks out as throughout the book, the person that we are going to see as the leader. And what I love about her, aside from the fact that she sees the Force as a song, because as like a a musically inclined person. I live for that. And that's a beautiful and wonderful interpretation of the forest because music itself is just um, so diverse and, and all over the place. You know, you get things like um, Lultian Politifolk. I'm, I'm just kidding. You get things <laughs> like, uh, you know, jazz to heavy metal to dubstep, you know, to all these different, um, if you listen to music widely, you know how widely music sounds. And and so I love that so much because I think you can place whatever music is on your heart into her song and um, imagine it in so many different ways. And so I love that a lot. I love the fact that she can tap into the force and enhance the connections of others. Uh, I think this is so important because we talk about the Jedi, we talk about attachment and connection and and sometimes there's a miscommunication i think between jedi jedi have different philosophies and while i don't think that is nullified by avar's power i do think it is cool that um avar's power allows them to communicate better with each other by enhancing their connections and allowing them to you know sense their positions and their feelings and those sorts of things better than they would without it <laughs> that's really freaking cool yeah, I think the most neat part about her is she doesn't really use the Force as like a as a superpower. She is like the epitome of what the Force actually is. It's about not jumping down to the Hetzel system, which, by the way, I love when it says Avar Chris. She does. <laughs> it says Avar Chris believed that the best way to win arguments was simply not to have them. And then she yeets herself out of the ship down to Hetzel. I'm like, girl, that is the perfect response to controversy. She, but she doesn't, what she, 
what she's figured out is that she's not going to engage in conversations and arguments that will go nowhere and lead to no solutions. She will find the solution and she will execute that solution. Yeah. And she doesn't, she doesn't ask questions of other people in a way that gets into the, the weeds of nonsense. Like, we'll talk about it later, but like she doesn't ask Elzar to explain why he is the way he is. She just accepts him yes. and understands that like, he's going to do what he's going to do and she's going to do what she's going to do. And I, I think that's great because um, I think it presents her as a very specific kind of leader that trusts the people around her to do the things that they need to accomplish. Like when she gives them a task, she knows they're going to go through with it. Yep. And um, she's someone that you immediately, to me, like I immediately feel comfortable around this character. Mm-hmm. Not because she's incredibly likable and she's like friendly to everybody, but because she is goals oriented. Um, and at the same time is people oriented. And I, and I love that. I, I think she, I think she is great. Yeah. She's great. Yeah. And like she trusts in the force. And when you think about her just kind of taking Elzar at face value and not necessarily trying to understand the mechanics of his mind, it's the same thing with the force. It says that she doesn't try to shove forward and find the uh-huh. answers that she wants. She listens to what it wills in its own time. You know, she goes down yeah. to Hetzel. There's that missing spot that she can't quite find, which we, we, we understand is the, uh, the, the super cooled liquid Tabana gas that's heading towards one of the suns in that system. And it's going to mm-hmm. cause a huge chain reaction that basically cooks the entire system in, in seconds, right? And she goes down to the planet and she's surrounded by life and she finds the missing note that she needed. You know, she doesn't push for that answer on the starship. She goes, okay, I'm going to trust in the force. I'm going to go surround myself with it, surround myself with those natural elements of the force and seek that deep connection. It's not going to take me a lot of effort to find that connection because I am so surrounded by the force. It's going to be easy for me. And it's, it's almost like she's the definition of think smarter, not harder. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Would you agree with that? I, I feel like now I'm just having a moment here where I'm like, that's literally Avar Chris you know yeah yeah Yeah, no she is yeah that's a great way to put it she's like uh we're just gonna do it (laughs) we're not gonna fuss around about it and make it more difficult for ourselves we're just gonna go into it yeah so i think that brings us to part two of our discussion which is the jedi and something that really sticks out about the high republic is both the the strength of the force and the ways in which the force is perceived because i don't because you know avar is not unique in the way that she sees the force in terms of seeing it differently there's there's a a whole couple pages describing how each jedi sees the force and i think that's that's really fascinating so as they discover that this super cool tabana gas is heading towards the sun you know she reaches out through the force and says you know we will find it together and uh, she becomes the starlight beacon of the Jedi. You know, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting, right? She's the light of the mm-hmm. Jedi. She, it's some, she's somebody that everybody can hear and sense. She's, uh, you know, it says the galaxy thrummed and it's an, there's an invisible hand kind of grasping each of the Jedi and uh, grasping the Tabana gas, sorry, and uh, making it come to a stop. And I love how she uses her lightsaber to like throw it up in the air and make it start spinning and like causing this humming, whining, ringing sounds that the Jedi kind that of. That is some 
weird shit. Right? It's like the yeah. do- it's like a dog whistle. Imagine. <laughs> I, I I I think about that and I have to I have to laugh because it's it's fascinating. But it it but it works. I do love how each Jedi sees the Force differently. We have Elzar, who sees it as a deep, endless, storm-tossed sea. We have Buryaga, who thinks of it as a single leaf on a gigantic tree with deep, dug roots and sky-high limbs. Douglas Sunvale, who we never really get to interact with, but he sees it as a huge, interlocked set of gears made of various materials from crystal to bone. I love these. <laughs> Bell Zedifar danced with fire, whereas his master, Loden Greatstorm, danced with the wind. Estala Maru, she sees the Tabana gas as a single light in a single window in a building of an endlessly spiraling nighttime city. And even Yoda, Yoda, we know how Yoda sees the force. Yoda, his great mind, sang its own part of the chorus, heartbreakingly beautiful, a voice of pure light belying on, on his physical appearance. Not this crude matter indeed. What a great line. I, you know, that's one of those nostalgia callbacks. Where I'm just like, that actually works right there. That's perfect. So it's just so awesome to see how they each approach the force in a different way and that that's what makes them so powerful. It's not the it's not like you they've leveled up the force in a way that makes them strong. It's that they have found a way to connect to the force um, that allows them to sense it even more profoundly. It's that it's that perception of the force that makes them strong, not the force itself. And I and I think what's so beautiful. Oh, my God. Shout out to to. Charles, who wrote this, but I'm also imagining that this element might have been, you know, workshopped among the authors. But I just, these are so beautiful because what they really do is exemplify themselves with relation to the Force and also things are, that are a part of the Force as parts of a whole and as con- interconnecting elements that relate to their own lives. So, you know, it makes me wonder if um, music was really important to Avar growing up as a Padawan Mm. or, you know, on whatever her home planet is, or if Elzar is connected to the sea in some way, right? And, and like, Buryaga, right? A single leaf on a gigantic tree with deep dug roots and sky-high limbs. Excuse me. That's like his childhood. Uh, they're from he's from Kashyyyk yeah which is a planet of giant Wosher trees where they build their homes which by the way you the know? Jedi outpost so, on Kashyyyk has a tree house so, uh, <laughs> come on uh, yes like yes lit um but you know that plus something like Douglas Sunvale who again we don't get to see which is unfortunate because I love this idea of the interlocking set of gears and they all need each other, no matter what they're made of, to come together and crank, you know, and turn and make the force go. And, oh, my God, it's I love different interpretations of the force. Yeah. You think of the Legends of Luke Skywalker in the tide and then you think of something like this. And I think these all work so beautifully with one another because it doesn't just say that, you know, different interpretations of the force is limited to culture. You know, some some other cultures won't think about the force as the force as the jedi do but each jedi right has a different way of seeing the force i think that is beautiful and brilliant and one of my favorite things to come from this book and this initiative at all and i hope we get more of these tellings more of them talking about and diving into the force as these books go on 
just more more of this, please. And I think this is why the Republic and the Jedi work so well together during this era, because they fundamentally believe in the same thing, right? Lena So believes that they mm-hmm. can't solve their problems individually, much like Avar Chris says, we will find it together. She understands that they can't take down this Tabanagas individually. She has to unite Jedi across thousands of light years away. Like, even Yoda. Yoda's nowhere near the Hetzel system, but he's still a part of this. And he helps uh-huh. with his Padawans on his sabbatical trip that we're going to learn about in the comic book. I think by Daniel Jose Older. I think that's his comic. That's the fascinating thing is, is they, they fundamentally have that same philosophy at their core. And that's why they work together well during this era. Whereas I think when you look at the prequel trilogy Jedi, I don't think they are as, are as much willing to give up their own lives to save an entire system. I think they are a little more selfish and dogmatic and introspective and don't want to get involved in the matters of uh, different systems. Uh, so I think you really do see, I, I'm wondering when that shift happens. And obviously we see that the Republic also becomes a place of uh, more kind of uh, focused on the bigger picture of the galaxy and more on the nuances of like trade route taxation and uh, all these just really random things that kind of clog up bureaucracy without actually getting anything done. And it's something that Padme Amidala tries to come in and shake up as much as she can. And uh, I think almost in a way, Padme is the the next iteration of uh, Lena So in terms of her ideals. Um, mm. But it's all very fascinating. It's all very interconnected. They believe in the same things is what I'm trying to say. And I'll go off on some mm-hmm. tangent about Padme if I don't stop myself. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the, quote, golden age of the Jedi. Yeah. I, I think this mm-hmm. is something that has uh, potentially turned people off to the book because um. I, as much as you do, believe that the Jedi are flawed and uh, they are the reason that the Republic fell. And uh, just like Luke in The Last Jedi, they were, they were very uh, full of hubris and uh, they, they screwed up, to say the least. So why should I read these books about the Jedi being, uh, being interpreted as the, the saviors and the heroes? Like, you know, why, do I, why would I, a reader, want to read a book about that, um, knowing that they're flawed? Sarah, why would you tell somebody who thinks that way uh, or, or maybe is like a little hesitant to read this book because of that, which I totally, totally understand and is completely valid. Um, I had the same worry going into the book. I don't anymore. Why would, what would you tell a reader who is kind of in that conundrum, that kind of middle ground uh, limbo area? Well, I first want to say that you brought up The Last Jedi and I just wanted to find that quote. Which is, but if you strip away the with the myth and look at their deeds, the legacy of the Jedi is failure. It's interesting, um, and I don't think that idea. If you love that idea in Last Jedi, I don't think that's gone here. We are at the beginning of something, not the end of it. So your question is, you know, if you like me are cynical about it, why should you pick up this book? Yes. Is that essentially what you're asking? Yeah. So me? for somebody who is like, I don't want to read about the Jedi in their golden age. They're they're flawed. They suck. They kind of suck. Why would I want to read about that? Yeah, you know? but like, yeah, but like, did, did you not listen to us talking about all these amazing interpretations of the Force? And I think the key is, <laughs> I mean, the key is what you said. You don't like the Order, but you like the yeah. Jedi. You like the individual yeah. Jedi. I love, yes. So I think that is, is 
thank you for answering my question your question with words that i said before <laughs> thank you so much you did all the work there thank you um we finish each other's uh, sandwiches thumbs up um i think what we're getting at here is the beginning of an end and the values of the jedi at this time are valuing all life you know not necessarily getting involved in um war um you know being mediators through jedi outposts and really thinking at high levels in order to thinking at high levels using the force to come to solutions and better ways to practice and that sort of stuff and i think these are all admirable but i really think what shines as we've just mentioned are the individuals it is not about the order as much as it is the individuals in the order it's about the cogs in the big wheel to make it go around and like i that's what i think is special about this book um is that it doesn't feel like it is about the order and again i i mean i i love the failure of the jedi in the prequels um and i don't think that i don't think you have to deify the order you as a reader don't want to deify the order i don't think that the book pushes that on you in an aggressive way i think that the book wants to extol that they have these um admirable values which they still do in the time of the prequels right. and you know the republic's falling they 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 still have admirable values but you can look at this book read all the lines in it and still say ugh they're kind of still a mess or there's some cracks here and i i don't know i don't know if i'm answering your question or just rambling um i i think the strong point is the ways that you know you interpret the force and the individuals and the relationships and that and that in itself their their relationships with one another goes against what the order's teachings are about attachment you know like they're still kind of doing the same thing they've always been doing no i think you despite this being a great time i i think you have an excellent answer you're what you're saying is yeah this book is not like propaganda for the jedi order that's not what this is yeah i don't think so it's yeah i agree with you character driven many different characters in this book i think oftentimes it it almost is too much in this book i think there's like too many points of view but again i think that's kind of what charles was tasked with and he still did it really well but i hope in the future there's it's like kind of more and i think that's where cabin's book is going it's more focused on a couple of people versus like so many people but Mm -hmm. it is still very character focused and like you said the values you know i think one of the biggest things that stuck out to me is the the value of all life. I mean, I mean, Bell at one point says to himself that lightsabers were designed to end conflicts and that, you know, there was no collateral damage with a lightsaber. That was something that can kill very quickly. And uh, it's, it's, the, it's a thing that when people see it, they see that light and they hear that hum, it's like a warning. It's, it's giving that person, that person you're about to face down, every possible chance not to fight. And uh, if they don't make the choice not to fight at that point, You've, you've given them the chance, right? And that's mm-hmm. what Loden thinks too. His master kind of follows that same philosophy. You know, it says, quote, he did not want anyone to die ever, but sometimes he had found people chose their own ends and there was nothing he or even the force seemed to be able to do about it. Oh, oh my gosh. That's a great quote to, that's a great quote to pull because um, 
I don't have anything to say about it. That's just a great quote to pull. I, it, it struck out to me as, um, you know, despite following the force and despite everything, sometimes, you know, not everybody, not everybody has the same philosophy. And sometimes people just play stupid games and win stupid prizes. Yeah. And, and even later on, my, my last one here that I have an example for is Avar Chris when she is in that final battle and she senses the Nile start to die, she thinks, quote, the song had become sad. The Nile had become like small wild creatures trapped in a cage, desperate to escape, doing anything they could, even if it hurt them, even if it killed them. Such a terrible waste. So she realizes even like the Nile, she has sympathy for them and it's such a waste that they have to die like this. But uh, at this point, it's like, They've kind of laid their bed, you know, they're doing anything they can to get out, but like, what a waste, you know? And I th- yeah. I think it really does, yeah, paint the Jedi in a way that like they do value all life, but they're willing to give all life a chance. Uh, the chance, it might be a split second decision, uh, as is the case with many of these lightsaber fights, like, nope, done. We, you, had, you, had well, a, you had a choice very quickly to make there and you didn't make it, so I have to protect my people, well, you know? Yeah, and some of them... Their choice, they've made their choice a long time ago. Yeah. And they're sitting so far in it that it's clear that they're not going to make another choice in the immediate, you know, in the immediate future. And when, when we talk about the values of the Jedi and like, are they perfect? Are they imperfect? I think the best example of that is the Jedi Council meeting, which happens in this book. And that's mm-hmm. the second interlude before part three of the storm. And I texted you this. I was like, this is something we're going to chat about. Like, absolutely. Because I think really, (laughs) this is probably the only time in the book that really digs into the order itself and like gets into that nitty gritty. And it's through the perspective of Mm -hmm. somebody who is fed up to her wits end with the Jedi Order. And she's just annoyed as hell. It is Jorah Molly, who is the master of Wreath Silas, who is the Padawan in Claudia Gray's Into the Dark. So it's interconnected. And it's cool to see her perspective. If I may, yeah, I would like to speak directly to the High Republic creative team in this moment. I would like my Jorah Mally prequel to the Star Wars The High Republic book. <laughs> She's fascinating. Okay, that's yes. all I have to say. I really want more of her. Rest in peace. My God, my heart was pulled out of my I was chest. Like, I was I like, I like flipped the page and I was like, is she? No. She dead? No. She, she dead? I was no, so it upset. can't be. She can't be dead. She was dead. Readers, she was dead. <laughs> but it's incredible because the fact that we felt that and this interlude is only a couple of pages just goes to show how loudly she spoke, despite speaking very little in that Jedi Council meeting. And she, she makes that observation several times that, like, they just don't shut up. Well, isn't there another passage where um, she's talking to Lena So or, or somebody and it, like, describes her as, like, though she may be small like a small I think she's oh yeah i think she attends the she, very she, first meeting like very yeah, early she's on. like yeah she may be small she may look uh, unthreatening she is sharp and she is um won't take any nonsense and she knows what she's here to do and i <laughs> i love her <laughs> she's fascinating so sarah who is on the council uh, at least what we've gathered from these couple of pages who is on the council at this time in the high republic all right i'm ready yariel proof rana kant opo ran this ran 
Um, Keaton Murag, Adalie Caro, Jora Mally, Master Rosasun, Master Adampo, Airfru Shin, who's a Mon Calamari, Grandmaster LaRue, and two more people who I'm not sure we have names. Master Yoda is the other one. Uh, no, but, but Master Yoda is replaced. Master Yoda is being replaced by Efru Shin um, because yeah. Master Yoda is on sabbatical. Um, I, yeah, I couldn't find uh, who the other two were. I just might have not looked hard enough. Um, but so I think I yeah. I think that we have most of the council and the couple of those names, including Yoda, stick through to the prequel era, which is really fascinating. Yeah, Yariel Poof. I mean, long neck <laughs> Jedi man. Oh God, he's a Kaminoan, right? Uh, I don't know what his species is. I don't think he's not Kaminoan. Uh, there's a different. Uh, let's find out. You know, we have the internet. We're gonna work. We have Thank the internet you. at our fingertips. Um, he's Quermian. Okay. Quamarin. They have two brains: one located inside their head, one located inside their chest, and two pairs of arms. So he's like Doctor Who. Okay. Yes, but they don't have to. The doctor does not have two pairs of arms. Right. Uh, You're like, I guess. He has two arms, but he has two hearts. And that's, that's why Yariel Poof is in the hearts of so many. So yeah, there is a little bit of crossover, which was really cool to see that like some of these council members are the same ones that we see in The Phantom Menace. So this conversation, this debate, the debate is, do we fight the Nile? Do we join the Republic? And uh-huh. uh, I, I love how we're seeing it through the eyes of, of Jorah, how she's kind of finding it pretty tiresome. Uh, she sees them arguing over, like, how do we interpret the will of the Force? And she just more, more mostly sees it as, like, a philosophical vortex. Like, you know, and it's just kind of like, are we going to argue over, like, the antics of the Force all day? Or are we actually going to do something and, like, help people out? And I think when you look at the prequel Jedi, they spend way too much time in those chambers. which funny detail i guess i never even thought of it of like why the windows of the high council are structured in that way it's because it's like open the jedi have nothing to hide so it's very symbolic in that way uh so i think you know even though they have nothing to hide it's like almost like what are they hiding like what are they doing actually are they making any decisions or are they just sitting there playing chess and making people guess you know is it a ship or a cup on my tablet so but it's, <laughs> it's not even it's not even that they have nothing to hide they can say they if we're talking about fault lines in the jedi order they say they have nothing to hide their whole jedi council room i don't you just called it something but i guess i'm calling it the jedi council room <laughs> is um plastered in windows but it's so high above everybody else Right. It's so far away from everybody else. Can anybody actually see in? Oops. Something to th- think about. <laughs> um uh because they're very they're very they might have windows. They might be able to see the sun when it's up. They are still very far removed from everybody else. Windows are a language. Windows are a language. Yeah. I saw your note. Um but uh the windows allowed them to to see out and and theoretically allow others to see in, but who's actually able to see that far? And um, it it 
it kind of goes back to that question you were saying or the question that the debate is posing is, you know, what does the force will it, you know, um, the Jedi are so focused on, you know, their outposts and their coordination with the Republic. And then the council kind of sits in this room kind of a far away from them and uh, theorizes for a while. And, you know, they're far, they're removed from the Jedi on the ground too. And so it's, it's, it's an interesting thought to think about the council as removed from the day-to-day because they are. And then you go back to Master and Apprentice and Qui-Gon and y- y- yada, 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 et cetera, et cetera. If you've read it, you know. It, it, it really did change my perspective, though, of like, what, what is the purpose of the council? Because like to Jorah, I think it's really, she's the best person to see this through the eyes of. And, and she makes a good point of like, Every single Jedi is connected to the Force, right? So whatever decision the Jedi make is the will of the Force. So to sit there and have these endless debates about what does the Force want? The Force wants what you will it to want. Like, your, your decision is going to be the will of the Force. So it's almost paralyzing in a way to just sit there and try to figure out what do we do. It's a waste of time. So I think her point to the Council when it comes down to her deciding vote, it's a, t- it's a five to five tie. Do we help the mm-hmm. Republic fight the Nile? She is the deciding vote. Her quote is, does the action I'm about to take bring more light to the galaxy? In this case, the answer is clear. It's really that simple. It's that freaking simple. Is the thing I'm about to do going to bring light to the galaxy? In this case, the Nile are causing strife and suffering, taking life from so many citizens and the Jedi have to do everything in their power to stop that from ever happening again. So the, the, the choice is so obvious. And for them to sit there and endlessly debate, you know, do we stop more disaster or do we not? What is the will of the Force? It just seems like, and Jorah's just like, why? We're going to bring light to the galaxy by saving the galaxy. Like, of course we will. Why are we debating this? It's just great. It's I wanna, great stuff. Yeah. And I want to highlight, um, a great, great moment on page 300. Um, you and I, Brad, both love our girl, Avatar Kiyoshi. We get a Kiyoshi moment from our good buddy, buddy Yariel Proof. <laughs> Yariel Proof here. And he says, yes, but we are guardians of two ideals, are we not? Sometimes, unfortunately, they come into conflict. We must always strive for peace, but also justice. Peace without justice is flawed hollow at his core it is the peace provided by tyranny and i think that in that moment poof kind of gets at the heart of it they want peace they want justice they they straddle these two ideals these two philosophies in a way right and another way we see fault lines in the jedi is through this you know what will bring light we have to go with that choice you know um i don't know anyway the jedi are flawed read the book <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i i do think this uh there's such a stark juxtaposition between like the individualism that we see throughout the book and then this specific mm-hmm. interlude of like look at yes. all of the boots on the ground making the hard choices saving the lives doing what needs to be done then you have these couple of jedi masters sitting on this council 
but like they're not the ones in the outer rim they're not the ones saving the the blithes on the uh, ogden's homestead they're not the ones on the ataraxia fighting against the nile they're sitting in their chambers so it's like a little bit of a out of touchness to it so um when you ask yourself should i read this book is it going to glorify the order it doesn't this chapter is very very much about the Jedi are pretty much just as like the Jedi Order are pretty much just as dumb as they are in the prequels. Like, but it's the uh it's the great acts of kindness of the individual Jedi, the Elzar Mans, the Belzadafars, uh, the Endira Stokes. Uh, those Buryagas. are the Buryagas. Like those are the ones that make these books worth reading. And I think as you uh as the Jedi Order advances, it's when you lose the spirit of those specific Jedi and that doesn't get passed on from generation to generation because the jedi order can never teach the right things that's when you get the hubris that's when the jedi order falls and i think uh, this is why it's the high republic is because you have these incredibly compelling characters who do the right thing and uh who understand uh the will of the force is their actions and their actions are to save people and to save lives and uh there's no question as to it um, but for these people to sit here in this high tower and, and endlessly debate it is just so out of touch. It, it really, really is. I do want to say uh, a note on Jorah Mali. She has a kyber crystal that was actually purged from a Sith light spear. So her lightsaber, oh my, her lightsaber oh blades my. are white. And I just want to say... <laughs> Jorah Molly, like she was like, well, I only did it as an intellectual exercise, but then the the kyber crystal kind of liked me, so I kept it. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, no big deal. I just, you know, on my Friday nights when I'm bored, I just purge kyber crystals. Like, no big deal. I'm cool. Like, I, I'm cool like you. It's fine. <laughs> I love her. I love her. Okay, I'll get closer to my microphone now. <laughs> that it. That shit is insane. Yeah, it's like, really cool. <sighs> Anyway, that's why I want more of her for, for stuff like that. She's like, and I did it just because, but I was kind of feeling it. I was kind of vibing with it. And me and the forest, we were kind of like linked up and we were like, I guess we'll go with this now. Like that's oh, so fucking yeah. cool. Anyway. Well, I will say we've talked quite a bit on the Jedi and their failings and how it's still pretty evident in the, the High Republic era. But like we said, uh, read these books for the individuals because that is the focus. The focus is not the order. Um, and, and to uh, dilute every single Jedi to what the order believes in, I think is a disservice to those specific Jedi. And as we're going to see, we're going to see some lost 20 here and there. We're going to start to see them drop oh off God. like flies, you know? <laughs> so, uh, that's, that's also exciting. Like who is going to be the first of the lost 20 or, or the first couple I would be interested to, to know. And you should all read mm -hmm. into the dark by Claudia Gray when it comes out next month, because you're going to learn a whole lot more about, uh, Reith Silas, uh, who is the Padawan of Jorah. I will say, too, uh, Skier, who is the Trandoshan Jedi, is really cool, and he has a pretty close-knit relationship with Jorah. It was uh, really hard to see him both lose his arm and uh, lose his best friend at the same moment. And In the same go. The fact that they were both joking about not dying right before, and I'm just like, damn it, I know something bad's about to happen. But uh, I love how they talked about uh, Trandoshan Jedi being pretty rare because that species is built on uh, predation and and supremacy and those don't necessarily line up with the order precept precepts but uh even when there are four sensitive trandoshans it's still unusual for them to to go to the jedi temple mm -hmm. what did you think of skier did you like him you think he's pretty pretty cool 
Yeah, I think he's pretty interesting. I I wasn't drawn to him as I was drawn to some of the other Jedi in this book, but I did appreciate him um, and his connection with Jorah. And I'm interested to see where he's going to go because I think he's got a really interesting background as a Trandoshan Jedi and how his limbs regrow. Yeah. Who doesn't love that? And I, you know, I will say, too, there's a lot of loss in this book. I mean, when you look at Skier, uh, when you look at... Buriaga and uh, Mikkel, they lose Tayami uh, during the fight to retain the Legacy Run's uh, black box or flight recorder. We lose mm-hmm. Loading Great Storm. Um, so I think these are... Uh, well, well lo- lose in the sense that uh, Bell thinks he's lost. He doesn't really sense him as strongly yeah. through the Force, uh, even though he's taken captive by the Nile. And I think we're going to start to see... How do all these Jedi who are so adamant about purging themselves of emotions and attachment, what are they going to do and how are they going to react to losing some of their favorite people? Which, Sarah, that brings us to uh, kind of our subsection of our Jedi portion of this episode, which is the relationships between different Jedi. And uh, the core of this book, like we said, are the individuals. So let's focus on some of those individual relationships and why why this book sticks out to us and why even though it does focus on so much and try to do so much in just a couple hundred pages it still has a lot of heart so who would you want to start with who do you want to <laughs> who do i want to start you with wanna, you want to go there right away we, we're doing it we're doing it live uh, should we start with somebody some i don't know people? should we build up i don't know um let's you know okay okay let's start with Actually, we will build up. We will build up. Yeah, okay, we're going to build up. We're changing the go. I think we should start. We're going we're gonna to go the other way around than our notes are. I think we should start with Nib Asek and specifically, just, this is just an excuse to talk about Buriaga. Yes. And also maybe a little bit about Tayami and Mikkel. So Buriaga on the cover of the book. If you've seen the cover of the book, you know how beautiful he is. Um, he's so beautiful um, with his gold fur, uh, kind of goldish brown fur. Anyway, he's so sweet. He saves everybody. Um, and he has a big heart despite um, some communication barriers because Shriwook is hard for humans um, in their vocal cords. But he really um, is the one that says stop. I think there are people on that fragment of the ship. He's the one that says, I see this boy over here who looks out of place and looks upset. I'm just going to sit with him and understand him and be there for him. (sighs) Brayaga, man, man, I didn't expect him to crawl that way into my heart, but he did. And he's got a really special relationship with his master, Nib Asek, because um, uh, she understands him they speak to one another she can understand shriwook um and they have that communication through a line and i like that as well yeah buriaga is definitely uh one of the softest of the jedi he is uh he's an empath by nature he uh senses you know when when surge who is one of the first characters we meet in the first chapter he's a little boy um who carries a lot of the weight of of what happens and thinks he's the one that caused the legacy run, uh, Buriaga goes over there and hugs him, and it says, quote, when someone was hurting, you did what you could to heal them. When someone was lost, you found them. I'm like, God, 
Buriaga is such a poet. He's just so emotional. And I love that. I think um, for a Jedi Order who encourages purging emotions, um, he does not shy away from that whatsoever. He is very emotional mm-hmm. indeed. And I love how, too, he hates social gatherings because no one understands him. But also it's somewhat of a superpower because people think that just because he doesn't, you know, speak typically in the terms that or the languages that they might, he's listening quite a bit and he picks up on a lot uh-huh. of information. And I think that makes him very wise. But when Joss and uh, Pika Adrian kind of praise him up as one of the heroes of the great disaster that saved so many lives, he says, quote, they were treating him like some sort of dot, 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 end quote. Uh, and, and the ellipses there at the end kind of makes me think that he is a little bit of in, in self-doubt. He doesn't necessarily see himself as a leader just yet or that he can be a hero. But I think, again, mm-hmm. he has the wisdom. He has the empathy. I think if uh, when you talk about different roles of the Jedi, which we kind of hear about through Porter Engel, uh, I think he could maybe take on the role of like a healer, possibly, or uh, like a teacher, a Jedi teacher. I think that's more his future than like a warrior type. I don't think he's meant to be a warrior. I think he's more along the lines of uh, maybe the, some of the younglings like that, that Yoda teaches, you know, and I think that's kind of his future and that's uh, very bright, you know? He also could be something like a diplomat kind of understand yeah. where people from other cultures or worlds are at uh, and, and try to, to meet them there. Um, I think also we kind of get, so we kind of get that relationship. These are kind of smaller ones, but, Tayami and Mikkel, and Tayami, may she rest in peace. I want to take a sidebar for a moment just to to pour one out for all we, all those we lost in this book, including Romar Montgo, Leo Jossi, Jedi Knight Rad, Barokchi, Jora Mali, Captain Bright, just to name a few. Oh, Captain Bright. Uh, those came and went too those soon. Those that we lost. Yeah, those we lost uh, in this in this one. Tayami as well. What I love about Tayami and Mikkel in the small moment that we kind of get to know them. Uh, you know, Mikkel and Tayami kind of get along, and I think about working together. And she says, "I think I'm going to report you to the council." <laughs> for performing an attachment to me how dare you <laughs> jokingly but also but like they're recognizing that this rule is a little silly because in order to work with one another you have to have some sort of relationship with them and, and understanding and um i i i love that but tayami's lightsaber this is just like the littlest detail that i think is so beautiful ugly as it was her lightsaber it served a perfect reflection of the great truth of the force no matter what a person was on the outside everyone inside or inside everyone was made of light oh i love that i love it i love it so much and um i i think with these two characters we do get a little bit at the heart of each jedi um and and their philosophy that everybody's made of light everybody is part of the force that you know there's a lot of love despite the whole no attachments thing there's a lot of love among all of these jedi for one another and a lot of care um uh and trust and yeah report them all to the council disband the order (laughs) maybe we'd be better off (laughs) well when you talk about rule bending especially around attachment i think that leads me to our our next relationship which is uh, porter angle and indira stokes and specifically ember who's a good girl 
and burr. <laughs> yes, you are going to scratch you behind your ear. <gasps> Who just set that Nile man aflame? Was it you? Yes, it was. Good girl. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Can't believe I just got that soft over Ember on, on the podcast. Somebody clip that and use it as blackmail against me. But I'll do it. Please don't. <laughs> Ember, when you talk about attachment, they make a joke about Ember, how she showed up to the building on Elfora and uh, Porter Engel and Indira found her there. And she was uh, wounded. They took her in. They, and they called her a team member because you always have to take care of your team. And that's not necessarily forming an attachment. So I guess there's a little bit of a work around there. So I, I do love how you're saying, like, all of these Jedi kind of do. Some of these Jedi think the rule is a little bit silly and they poke fun at it. So this is just they like another do. this is like another example of that. Like, yeah, we brought her on. And we made her a team member so we could keep her and love her so much and give her good ear scratches, especially when she saved <laughs> when she saved Porter Angle and lit that guy up on fire. Like it just says, quote, literally, Ember did not stop. Just continued torching the Nile until at first he stopped screaming and then he stopped moving. And then Porter scratches her ear and says, good girl. Very good girl. <laughs> Isn't that the best uh, like, thing in Star Wars you've all- ever read in your life? Come on um brad is a dog person and he is thrilled about the inclusion of a real star wars dog more star wars dogs (laughs) um i think that this whole like they called her a team member or in order to kind of keep her around is so interesting because it it it's one of the way that recognizes that this whole attachments rule is absurd and everybody kind of knows it's absurd. And for like Tayami and Mikkel, they make a joke about it. And this relationship, they make a workaround. For um, <laughs> Ava, Chris, and Elzar Man, they know it's kind of crazy because they're they're sitting here both not talking to each other and just like denying their feelings. Mm-hmm. They should all go back in time and slap the Prime Jedi's. <laughs> Or whoever came up with this silly, silly nonsense. It really is silly, honestly. It's just, it's, uh, it's nonsense. It's, it's, uh, it bogs down decision-making and judgment. That's, that's all it really does in some ways. Yeah, because you have to, to me, you have to make decisions with care and love. Um, anyway. Let's talk about Porter. Let's talk about Porter. The Blade of Bardota. The Blade of Bardona, we better find out what this means. Oh. Um, but he has spent 300 years in the Old Order, so he's old. And he's, you know, kind of like a Yoda or a Yariel Poof or Opa Ran... 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 Yeah. I have no idea. We tried. It really hurts my brain. We tried, um, honestly. But, <laughs> but uh, he's somebody who's been around a lot and lived a lot of different lives. And he had been a teacher, an explorer, a diplomat, a warrior, a legend, you know, among the Order with that title of the blade of bardota and that's really interesting because he's made a decision to kind of like just be this outpost jedi and just like chill out on uh el Farona, i think that's, that's how you say that but i could be wrong um he's a cook you know he just retired there on on el Farona. and i think i think you want to talk about porter angle i do so i'm gonna let you pick up that that thread I do want to talk about him. First thing I want to ask you, though, is would you eat his Porter's nine egg stew? No. Really? Yeah, it's nine eggs. But it's got that special Porter angle love. 
baked into it. I get it, but like I'll I'll eat another one of his special delicious meals. Not the nine okay. eggs stew. That sounds kind of miserable. No offense to Porter Angle and his um yummy cookie. Okay, all right. We'll pretend we won't tell him. We don't want to offend Porter Angle. But Porter Angle okay. is really fascinating to me. I like the idea that when a Jedi retires, uh, they can choose to just live on Coruscant. But he specifically was like, I don't want to do that. I've been a teacher. I've been an explorer. I've been a diplomat, a warrior. I am kind of done being here. He's kind of the, uh, he's kind of the person that, you know, grows up in one town, stays there for quite some time and is like, I need to move out. <laughs> you know, like I need to go somewhere. I need to try something new. And he mm-hmm. is this just veteran Jedi who decides I'm going to live on Alfrona as a sort of sheriff. He's going to settle disputes, defend towns, bring criminals to justice, teach children, offer medical assistance, help people. He's just going to help people. It's that simple, right? And I love him so much. He's kind of just got the mentality of like, screw y'all, I'm going to go cook some random eggs and live on this mining planet forever. And that's just like, uh, I, I love this energy, honestly. And when the push comes to shove and the Blythes come into trouble and they have to go rescue him, which uh, I wasn't. This this storyline, this is probably like the only storyline in the book that dragged for me like a little bit. But I love when they're you know trying to rescue uh, rescue these farmers, and it, it describes him as a dormant volcano beginning to wake with unimaginable power. I'm like, dang, that's pretty cool. And he calls us Steely, a luminous being. He's like, you are light and speed, and there is nothing in this world more beautiful. I'm like, that's a perfect perfect line. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. And another thing, too, is when we talk about the Jedi viewing all living beings as, as valuable, he, he kills one of the Nile sniper, snipers, and he thinks to himself, he, quote, regretted that a living, thinking being, a child of the Force, had made choices that brought him to such an end. A child of the Force. Everybody's a child of the Force, mm-hmm. even the Nile, right? Mm-hmm. So I think he's got a very, like, empathetic nature about him, uh, and that he wants to help people. He's retired, so he'll give everybody a chance. But, like, also, don't mess with the Blade of Bardota, because he'll kick your ass, probably. Meanwhile, Endera Stokes, uh, I didn't get as much from her in this book, uh, hopefully more later mm-hmm. on, but she's definitely, like, very technologically savvy, uh, which I liked about her, and she's, you know, driving the Vanguard, uh, which, by the way, I love that, like, most of the Jedi vehicles, you have to, like, plug in your lightsaber as a sort of key. Um, it's absurd, so and silly, I love it. but I love it. It's, like, such a Star Wars thing to happen uh it's just like ridiculous and i love it but um indira stokes i I love this whole gang i love that they're you know that they're all on elfrona and i would love to to hear more about them and i gotta say too uh so happy the farmer mom erica did not die i was very worried for a second we were gonna lose yet (laughs) we were gonna lose yet another mom in star wars uh thankfully uh indira was able to save her life. So uh, let's pay some respects there as well. Indira saving another mom in Star Wars. Thank you so much. Shout out. Shout she it. also saves Bell when he's, you know, doing his jumpy, folly landing thing when her and, 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 and Bell's like, um, did, did Loden put you up to this to be at like, you know, the bottom? She's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Um, there's this kind of settled nature to that whole group that uh, I like a lot. And kind of transitioning into another major relationship is is Belle and Loden, master and apprentice. Um, well, 
Loden is master, Bell is the apprentice, and Bell is the one who has Ember. I I love Bell. I really do. <laughs> um, shout out to Bell. But Loden is also amazing. He is um he's like a dark green Twi'lek, and he looks very regal and also a little tough and I don't know. I don't know what to say about them. I, I got good vibes from this relationship and I liked both of them, but I like I don't know how to talk about them. So Brad, I hope you do. What I will say is they've got a very close-knit relationship, Bell and Loden. I think mm-hmm. they are uh they're almost close to like Anakin and Obi-Wan in a way, minus the mm. the many immaturities of Anakin and the sort of tension that's there of jealousy. I think uh there's more of an endearing nature to the relationship, but that that brotherhood is still very much intact. I think what really defines Loden's uh, master uh, master philosophy is if I do everything, no one learns anything. So he really wants to put Bell uh, through what Bell describes as a sort of endless gauntlet of impossible tasks that push him to his limit. Uh, but he accepts mm-hmm. it. He tries and he keeps trying and trying and trying. And, and I think the common thread is the jump. You know, he jumps out down to Hetzel. He jumps down to Elfrona. Uh, and it's finally towards the end of the story that he makes the final jump and is able to to land and, and use the force in the way that he sees fit. And that's kind of that cool moment of like, yeah, you did it. You know, freeze frame, fists in the air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's also two with brotherhood comes that attachment. I think there are some dark qualities to Bell potentially because he talks about, you know, the force is this thing that he's able to tap t- into and feel as bright of a sun with so much light pouring out of him that he might go blind, right? And there's all the, always this, like, little small light inside of him that never stops shining. But he says, too, quote, from spark to inferno, any connection to the force chased away the shadows. What are the shadows? Mm-hmm. So clearly, it's like when he taps into the force and experiences this light, he thinks it's chasing away some sort of shadow inside of him. So what does that look like? Does that mean the dark side is lingering inside of Bell? Does this is this going to bode well for Loden's capture at the end of this book? I, I think uh, it's kind of one of those things where maybe we see the light snuffed out of Bell's Zetafar. I mean, I think there is something I can't handle. That. There is something very specific about this phrasing and the fact that Bell's Zetafar. loses his master at the end of the book to the nile and how is he gonna how is he gonna deal with that you know that's what i'm most excited for is he gonna dabble in the dark we shall see and we know well sarah yeah well i hope that he's gonna be good because i love him and i love him on the cover of rising storm by kevin scott yeah he's Um, one of the central figures of the book he's handsome he's a jedi He's hanging out with other Jedi hotties, Stellan Geos. And I, I must say, this is a tangent. This is a tangent from our Bell and Loden comment. But the trio, we're going to talk about them in a minute. The trio of Azar, Avar, Elzar, and Stellan Geos. God bless them. They have some great genes. Yeah. Very beautiful people. That's it. All these Jedi are hot. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Another reason to read this book, even if you are cynical about the Jedi Order. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, I know Avar, Elzar, and Stellan are all very close-knit. They've been close-knit for quite some time. Uh, they're sort of like the three musketeers of sorts of uh, the Jedi Order. 
But let's narrow it down. Let's get a little steamy up in this Friends of the Forest podcast to start 2021. I've watched Bridgerton, folks, and I will never be the same. Let's talk about Space Bridgerton, <laughs> which is the romance of Avar Chris and Elzar Man. What are we what are we dubbing the ship name for this? Is it uh, Avzar? I um Avzar um uh, Elzar. Actually, Elzar still works, <laughs> but that's not fun. Actually, a- Avzar kind of works. We'll workshop it. How about Cran? We'll tweet it out. See how people catch on. Cran. Cran. K R A N N. And then we could like we draw. We could like draw well, like two little crayons holding hands. You know what, listeners? If you mm. feel similarly to either the way that Brad or I Please. do, which actually is quite different about this um, relationship, I do not see this as Space Bridgerton a lot at all. Um, I just want them to kiss. Avesar or Koran. Or something else entirely. Let's let's workshop it. Let's talk let's about it. Let's have discuss. a conversation and come up with something. And we'll do it. We'll maybe we'll put out a poll. I don't Listen, know. Listen, if know. you're listening and you're good at art, uh draw two crayons dressed in the like the white like white crayons dressed as the Jedi on the cover, so you have a reference point. Um, but they're holding hands. And then just put the word crayon <laughs> above it. K-R-A-N-N. If you do that and you tag Friends of the Force on Twitter, I will retweet it. I will retweet it. I promise. Cran. Let's oh make it work. Let's make um, it work. Anyways, Sarah. Anyway, either, either, either way you spin it, either way the cookie crumbles, we love Avar Chris and Elzar Mann on this podcast. It's a love story. Baby, just say yes. Um, and that's what they're missing because they're not talking about it. Exactly. So <laughs> what, are, what are the background between these two how far back do they go and like why even though they work in a professional manner there is definitely something unsaid beneath the surface for both of them also did you expect romance in this book let me ask you that too um to answer that question first before we go anywhere else uh i don't know i don't know i don't think so i don't think so you know especially in that first part where we were just like action 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 did not expect any kind of romance or pining or gazing or yada yada and then we got it and then i tweeted out as i was reading the book i was like i'm not gonna say what it is but i just found my favorite paragraph in this entire book it's soft and inconsequential and i love it anyway uh we'll get on more on that in a minute but elzar is described as avar's oldest closest friend in the order she describes him as funny and clever and they you know they just got along they're part of a trio with Cell and Geos who grew up and grew in rank together and are all kind of very close and have, have worked well together in the past. But clearly, clearly with a capital C, they have had something a little more going on in the past. Um, and, you know, thinking back, I mentioned it earlier, but like Master and Apprentice, you think about, I think it was, there's like hints to a, a secret old, I think, Qui-Gon relationship that he might have... Mm, had at one point and then when you think of like Clone Wars and Obi-Wan and Satine and that whole thing Anakin and Padme these Jedi are having relationships but especially when you're young when you're growing and you're feeling lots of feelings (laughs) it seems like this was commonplace yes 
Elzar suspected, this is on 375, Elzar suspected they were thinking about the same thing. Shared moments as Padawans, tolerated and understood and even common, but things to be left behind once one ascended to become an adult in the Order. They hadn't discussed these moments, not in a very long time, and never with more than an oblique reference, but they were never far away from each other's mind, especially when they were together. Hmm. Ooh. Something there. Ooh. There is something. Does it mean, you know, does it mean that they kissed um having a secret relationship um exploring the force together and that i do not mean as a euphemism but um but you know he talks about seeing the force when seeing his own perception of the force when she looks at him in in her eyes so who knows uh or maybe even getting it on that i do mean exactly what you think it means um but they knew that once they reached their adulthood that they had to give this up and I think that's all very interesting and a little sad because they knew that they could fool around or, or get away with something as a kid and feel the feelings that they wanted to feel and form those attachments, but that they couldn't, there was a point that they had to stop. But clearly they haven't stopped, stopped because they're still thinking about it, which means it's not really in the past at all, ladies and gentlemen. It is in the present and they love each other. Yeah, those old feelings definitely do carry into the present day because there there is this professional relationship that's sort of baked into the romance there and i think they try to use that professional relationship to like deny themselves of those feelings right because we we know elzar is somebody that's trying to be on the council but the council views him as this sort of uh qui-gon-like figure in a way somebody that uh is frustrating to deal with because he'll never explain what he does or how he does it. But Avar just kind of accepts him for who he is. She never has to ask him why he does the things he does. Um, but she also chooses him for these missions because she wants to uh, help him in his eyes. She, she chose him because she wants to help him get elevated to the status of a, of a Jedi master. And it's funny. They have these moments where he tries to use uh, the mind trick. It's commonly referred to as the mind touch. I think, uh, <laughs> Elzar is a trendsetter <laughs> because it becomes the Jedi yeah. mind trick by like unanimously across mm-hmm. culture uh, in the in, in universe. And they have this sort of thing where like, you know, he says, oh, you got me. I was going to use it there, but I won't. And they kind of smile at each other. And, you know, they have the whole moment where they cool down the, the supercomputer together. And uh, it says that Elzar felt something like exaltation, you know, joy in a difficult job doing something well. Uh, by two people connecting on a deep level without any need to explain each other about what they were doing. It had always been this way ever since their Padawan days. Their connection made things better, but if he was being honest with himself, it also made some things worse. Um, let's be very clear. That some things is his heart. <laughs> and also, he's getting blue-balled. Like, this guy really <laughs> just wants to have a good time with Avar. He just you, wants to kiss He just you wants to and kiss I- her. Just really have a totally different <laughs> interpretation of this relationship. <laughs> Listen, and I'm I just love trying that. to. I'm just trying to find some joy uh, this week, and if it's the thought of Elzar Man getting blue balled, <laughs> but no, really, real talk though. Oh, like this, God. this, this relationship, uh, they they do, they do think of something, and like, what better way to, what better scene to have, if you're talking romance, Sarah, yeah, than on Naboo. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh-huh, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. And not only on Naboo, mm-hmm. they are literally at the lakeside, mm-hmm. looking across the lake. Darn right they are. And what do they see? Varakino, 
Padme Amidala's house. <sighs> we hit my favorite paragraph. So if you saw my tweet many weeks ago at this point, and we're like, huh, what is she talking about? Now this reader, listener, this is on 175. She glanced at him. He looked good. Happy, his dark eyes shining, a grin lighting up his face, though that could be due to the drink uh, in his hand, some green stuff in a stemless glass bowl. She didn't know what it was, but she knew Elzar, and so Oz were it was the finest intoxicant their hosts had available. And considering their hosts, it, that meant that it was probably very fine indeed. I, <sighs> when I tell you that I <laughs> pretty much yelled upon reading this, I was like, I love it. What I love so much about this is, like, the gaze in the pining. <laughs> um, but there's just, like, this gaze. She looks, she looks at him, and she sees him, and she sees him as beautiful and happy and full and um, of, the, of the light. And that melted my soft little heart. <sighs> yeah, and she's thinking of retirement and, like, life after being a Jedi, and she kind of revels in the thought of spending that time with Elzar. But it's not something she would ever tell him, she thinks, because uh, he would just tease her about it, which, like, oh, so endearing. And but Sarah, I do want to make wouldn't. clear. He wouldn't. I, I do want to make clear. When I thirst over these two, like, I'm also completely in agreement with you. Like, uh, this isn't a relationship about sexual desire. This is a relationship about comfort and care and a quiet presence of contentment, like you said. Yeah, yeah. Those are my it, is, it is that. But... <laughs> let's get star wars steamy yeah okay okay well if we're gonna talk about star wars steamy we're just we're just kind of going all over the place at this point but yeah um, yeah oh you know i'm gonna tangent if we're talking about star wars steamy i'm going to talk about the jedi romances oh yes yes vel is reading she's like uh, he read a few. They were all set on outposts on far Republic frontiers full of unrequited love and longing glances like, shit, this is the shit that gets me real good. Um, like, <laughs> I, 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 I live for the, the longing and then the hurt. Um, I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> anyway, um, full of unrequited love and longing glances. The only action was the lightsaber battles that were clearly a substitute for what the characters really wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> i love that oh. that was um when uh. i tell you that was like really thrilling to read i really do mean it like that was so unexpected like in the first 25 pages of the book and so much fun to read um i want those uh i wow okay yeah the unrequited love longing glances um ouch they don't get steamy at all in fact they get like everything but the steam but i loved that quote i think it was great and you said like oh i didn't realize this was going to be foreshadowing until it was you know <laughs> um and and i also agree with you i i love me some steamy romances i'm not gonna say i yeah. don't because i do i you know when i say space bridgerton you know i watched bridgerton uh there are a lot of moments on that show uh, even though it does get like super super uh, maturely steamy in certain parts there's also like a lot of just like longing glances and like hand holding and some of those like smaller intimate uh showings of love so when we go to the end of the book when they're kind of taking their stroll through the the starlight beacon it says here uh quote those times many years in the past seemed very present just then avar stopped it took elzar a step to realize she wasn't keeping pace and he turned back to look at her 
He raised an eyebrow. She held out her hand. He took it. He held up, looked at it, then looked at Avar Chris, his friend. The look she gave him was like that sea he found inside himself, the force, deep and endless and impossible to fully comprehend. You could drown in it. We are Jedi, he said. We are, she replied. She looked away and let go of his hand, and he was no longer drowning, but perhaps some part of him wished he was. So if there's any indication of what is... If you miss all the other parts of this book between them, you cannot read that sentence and not realize. I think uh, for anybody that might not have realized it, that was when they were like, whoa. Because, again, it's the, we are Jedi. We are. And it's kind of that thing of like, we know what we both want, but we know we're both Jedi. Uh, But then there's also kind of like the, we are. We are Jedi. Maybe we can just do this anyways. It shows that Elzar is like, I want to keep drowning in the sea of the force with you and but avar thinks that that thought is really silly and like she won't talk to him about it because she thinks that's really silly and and she thinks he will think it's really silly too but like he's feeling the same way that's the irony of it i don't know i just i guess i just really like it when a knife is just shoved into my chest (laughs) twisted Twisted and twisted uh, because that's what this is, and I live for it. Um, so I, I could talk about these guys all day. We literally pretty much have two pages, two of pages notes of notes, yeah, on, on them specifically. But I think the bottom line is like they better be allowed to have a happy ending. Agreed. And plot if they're twist: not, they move into Padme's home on Naboo. <laughs> that would be if, great. If they're not able to have a happy ending, I will be crushed and part of me expects that that they're not be able to have that happy ending but like oh my god imagine if they were like just uh, just that would fulfill my soul so this is another direct notice to the Cran. creative team crayon slash avesar is crayon is the crayon is the new raylo <laughs> the new Raylo. I'm let the I past am... die the skywalker saga <laughs> done over with we have moved beyond the need for the skywalker saga we are full on cran cran stands cran- oh my god <laughs> we just <laughs> blew my own mind that's it that's it that's it that's it <laughs> oh my god oh my first of all oh my god second of all oh my god third of all Oh my god. Fourth of all, I you know, I don't know if every Raylo fan is gonna be into this because this is a lot more like friends to lovers than it is enemies to lovers if we're talking tropes. But I am a sucker for a friends to lovers romance, so that's just who I am. And just like everything. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, they deserve gosh. happy endings and I am a cran stan. <laughs> cran stands unite. Oh god, I can't. I can't wait till we're kind of past the spoiler phase and we can just start posting Cranstan. Oh god. Wait, Cranstan? Brian Cranston? Is Brian Cranston going to play Elzar Man on the High Repo- I'm just I don't, I'm just wow, I, I'm going to stop myself. That was some big big brain amazing work. But like but like Brian Cranston is like I want to say like 25, 30 maybe, years old. Maybe maybe like then. older retired Elzar. 
Elzar Man. There you go. All Living right. on figured, Naboo with Avar We figured Avar it Chris. out. We figured out the Which, secret. By the way, the Jodie Whittaker, Avar Chris uh, fan casting is the uh, only fan casting I will accept at this point in time. I've seen some other ones that I like as well, so I'm not going to settle into one at this moment. I just love her doctor. It's just so good. It's so good. I still got to watch the holiday special. But anyways, we are going to move on from uh, Cranstan to the world much beyond the Republic, much beyond the Jedi. In fact, these people hate the Jedi. We are going to talk about the Nile in our final part here before we wrap everything up. So we wanted to devote an entire section to the Nile because uh, they are being ushered in as the new, the new baddies of Star Wars. And uh, when you ask yourself why the Nile or who are the Nile, um, I, I think really the, the biggest thing with them is they have been described as like Vikings. Uh, but Vikings had a code of honor and the Nile don't. And the, the unique thing about the Nile is they're set up with the eye of the Nile, who is Martian Roe. And then you have his Tempest Runners, who are Pan Eta, who's a Dewutan, Lorna D, who's a Twi'lek, and Kassab, who's a Weequay. And these are his three Tempest Runners. And any decisions that are made for the Nile are made by these four. Uh, any split decisions, Ty goes to Martian. And really, they just love living in the Outer Rim. They love living there and having freedom to do whatever they want. The Republic hasn't encroached on their space just yet. Uh, with their law and order and uh, they love just being marauders and they have the special ability of the paths it's what allows them to make micro jumps Uh, they can go inside gravity wells or enter hyperspace from anywhere they want Uh, they're kind of like spirits they can just appear at will with the three lightning strike symbol on their ships and kind of strike fear in the heart of anybody Uh, within the nile too they're just uh, these savage savage people i didn't expect this from them but you know like pay the price uh you you join the nile thinking you're gonna have freedom but like once you're in you kind of have a boot on your chest the entire time it's like you know uh fall in line or pay the price you'll get thrown out into the the great void or you'll get your your throat cut by a vibroblade so they're pretty savage and uh all the spoils go up to the Tempest Runners in the eye. It's it's kind of like weird to think that they structure themselves where they carry out these jobs, but the the rewards go up to the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very uh, it's a very capitalist group for for a group that wants freedom. You know, it's 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 interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah, they're a group that want freedom, but exist within a lot of strict structure and strict hierarchical structure, which is like. Is that freedom? We'll right. Ponder on. Let's ponder on that thought. Let's use our big brains. But oh man, they are very interesting. Also, because they are um frauds <laughs> in a way. Their whole order, their whole organization, is built on a lie, which makes somebody like Martian Rowe very interesting. And I will say that when I'm reading this book. There's no doubt that the Nile are really complex, fascinating, exciting villains. But I will admit, and I hang my head in shame, that I was when I was reading sections about the Nile, I was wondering when we were going to go back to the Jedi because I love them. Um, so the Nile, the Nile are like not 
my wheelhouse and and but like they fascinate me and like no space no space i i don't have anything to say about it but like no space <laughs> yeah the kind of the great beyond where they're hiding it's uh it is really really interesting honestly but you know i think this uh this history of the Nile. And like you said, they're, they're built on a lie. So what, what does that mean exactly? So when we look at Martian Roe, he inherited the Nile from his dad, uh, Asgar Roe, who was the custodian of the paths. Uh, he was murdered by uh, Kassav, I believe. And uh, by the way, he has a Kashyyyk Warsher tree in his cockpit uh, on the Gaze Electric, which uh, got to appreciate a man with style. Just got to say that. But So interesting. He's very Kylo Ren in a way, in terms of uh, he mm. wears a mask. Uh, I don't know if he's necessarily got as much of a heart's, heartful side or uh, like a redemptive side, or at least I just haven't seen it yet. But we really see him kind of take a turn for the worse towards the end of this book. Mm-hmm. I think he starts out a little more empathetic, and you can kind of sense there's a bit of a struggle internally with him. But by the end of the book, he's just kind of full-blown crazy and like willing to sacrifice Kassav and, and throw him into a trap so that he can get the Republic off his back, right? He's willing to kill one of his own people in the line of duty and lie to his entire people about it and say that, you know, Kassav went into a trap. I didn't set up the trap. It was, it was him that ran into it. So uh, I think the heart of Martian is he he has a long-standing history, his family, with the Jedi. We don't know what that is yet exactly, but Asgar wanted to use the paths for redemption and revenge for his family. Uh, but even though he never got to see that come to fruition, he passed that on to his son, and now mm-hmm. Martian wants the Nile not to really be the selfish, ravaging, disorganized band of criminals that they are currently, but they need to evolve uh, because the Republic is starting to encroach on their tori- ter- territory. My territory, as, as Martian says it is. And I think... I-, I definitely get the Kylo Ren vibes of, like, you know, finish what my grandfather started, right? Finish what my father star- started. And even though the eye can't act, uh, the eye sees. And he uses the paths through what we find out is Marie Santeca. Which is crazy, which we haven't talked about the Santecas yet. I know we had them earlier in our outline, um, but now we can kind of talk about yeah. where the paths actually come from and the idea of hyperspace. And that's the hyperspace advantage is what really sets the Nile apart. So do you yes. want to talk about the Santecas and yeah. kind of what their family history is and how Marie fits into it? Yeah. So the, when I heard that we were going to get like some ancestors of legacy characters, I was like, Phew we really do we really need that <laughs> and it turns out that there's some of the most interesting and exciting kind of elements of it and i i am specifically also talking about avon steros from a test of courage i love her i would die for her but in this book we have the santeca clan the santecas who essentially made bank being prospectors and finding routes through wild space. And not everybody could do this successfully. Many people tried and then got lost, you know, in space. Horrifying. Um, but they became one of the wealthiest 
families in the entire galaxy because they sold their routes to people, governments, organizations for profit. You know, you can use our routes. You can have our routes <laughs> if you pay us a pretty penny. So, you know, they they now continue to do this work as like, quote unquote, hyper surveyors um, to find new paths. But, it, you know, it's something that it's quoted as like hyperspace being its own plane of existence. That's crazy to me. So, I hadn't thought of it that way. Right. It's like it's it's you're entering another bubble of space time. Yeah. Um, and again, um, what I find to actually be really exciting about this, and I'm, I'm tangenting, but bear with me for a moment, uh, is the kind of connect, the way it feels kind of Star Trek-y in a good, good way. Like, I like that because it feels a little bit more sci-fi than like fantasy. Um, and I like that it's being rooted in the sci-fi. But like in Star Trek Discovery, they work through this mycelial network, um, which is a way for them to move in space time as well. And they like jump. Um, you know from place to place and this feels similar in a way like yeah when you go into that space you're not in the same dimension essentially that you were in before which is really interesting and that you can get lost in that plane of space that doesn't exist in normal space time so the santecas are really key in this and and one of their family members mari you call her marie i call her mari different same same thing same person to me mari is really interesting because she was captured as a child or taken six years old yes presumed to be dead to the santecas that elzar and avar visit uh until they essentially tell them what's up and asgar roe and marchian roe have been manipulating and abusing her since her childhood to give them more paths and now she is frail and old and on her deathbed and martian is still like dragging paths out of her despite her own health and he's not even using these paths right now he's saving them for later because he knows once she dies it's like his power as the eye is kind of gone so he has to retain those paths because that's kind of the only thing that's been keeping him alive this much because people know like we can't get the paths without martian but we want to all kill martian because we kind of hate the guy honestly yeah and they don't know that he's not the one in power mari santek has been kept away from everybody for decades upon decades a secret that has been kept between asgar and martian and the the members of the, the, the crew of the Gaze Electric, more or less. And um, first of all, Gaze Electric is a great ship name. That's all I have to say. Um, but when I read this and realized what was happening here, it's horrifying. And it kind of hints at some of the later atrocities that the Nile engage in, such as like jumping, like when Mari gives them the paths and Cassiv's ships are now on war paths essentially and they're jumping into the republic ships and exploding them from the inside and like on suicide missions horrifying stuff just terrifying and unthinkable and and scary and the fact that they have been treating mari this way for her entire life is devastating 
and inhumane and awful. And I think of anything in the Nile stuck out to me, it was that. And um, shit sucks. Like, that's awful. Well, and to the fact that Martian is making her feel like she's serving some sort of benefit, you know, saying that, hey, you're selling these to the Republic or whatever government that your mind makes up in your head at this point in time. Yeah. And, you know, she she's happy. She's content, even though she's basically living in a medical pod. Right. And against her own will, in some senses, I almost thought of Echo from uh, the Clone Wars, which I know you're you're, you haven't watched the Clone Wars, but for those Mm -hmm. of you who remember what Echo looked like when he was uh, when he was found. I, I kind of thought back to that. And uh, I love the fact that like Marlo and Velis, when they meet with Elzar and Avar, uh, Avar and Elzar can kind of sense they're not giving everything up about hyperspace and their secrets and what they know because they're kind of starting to understand, well, if the legacy run, if something crashed into it, in hyperspace it has to be our it has to be our sister right it has to be she's the only one that could know possibly how to jump across hyperspace into an object in another part of space time and they know in they, they note on page 180 strange things happen psychologically when you're out in space we have stories from our family's history you wouldn't believe madness creeps in before you know it and she got these abilities when she traveled out into uh, you know, the the outer regions of hyperspace and and that's where it all began. So it, it is a tragic story and it yeah, it is so uh awful and heartbreaking to think of this like, you know, woman propping up this man and he's getting all the spoils, but like she's kind of living on life support uh against her own free will. Mm-hmm. And the Nile represent freedom, yet they've taken it away from this one person, right? So uh that's the type of thing where it's like, you know, usually I like to sympathize with villains. And I'm finding it really hard in some ways with the Nile because they are so savage. They have yeah. no code. They have no, uh, they don't believe in anything like, 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 we, like we've heard repeatedly over and over and over again. So I'm wondering, like, who is going to be the person that breaks ranks? Who is going to be the person that we can sympathize with, right? And I think Martian, again, there were elements of it there. But by the end of the book, he's just out of his mind crazy. I mean, he's wearing the cloak of his dad again. He's requesting everybody to bring him more Nile, as many as you can. I will give you everything. He hates the Republic. He wants to, he wants to basically uh, take everything and make it his. And, you know, his family long ago learned the costs of, of what the Jedi can do and how they can invade and, and instill their own rules and laws. And I want to know more about that especially, but he is just on a path of revenge right now, and I don't think there's any stopping him. Uh, he's he's really far and deep. Yeah. 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 I will say too, Sarah, we haven't talked about Kevin Tarr, uh, but when you think of uh, Mary Tekka as like the Niles version of uh, hyperspace mapping, Kevin Tarr is like the Republic's. Yes. They're kind of the two, uh, uh, the two hyperspace savvy experts mm-hmm. in a way, but I just want to shout out Kevin Tarr real quick. Uh, really the MVP. He used 57,000 Navi droids to figure out an algorithm to see where the emergences would be happening. He sliced <laughs> hyperspace. What a, what a guy. You know, you know, like um, when uh, Bill Nye was on Dancing with the Stars and now we are gifted. Um, the internet has this incredible gif of um, Bill Nye just going, science! And he's like shaking his arms above his head. That's what I right. feel like this whole 
thing with Kevin Tarr is like it's him doing all the math and the science and together they found the algorithm. Like it's really it's <laughs> exciting. It's exciting. I just think like the fact that Kevin Tarr became the Ministry of Technology and Hetzel before twenty five, like what are I we can't. doing? What are we yeah, doing? Yeah, what am I doing with lives, my life? Jeez. Right? Jesus. Uh, but he had like a lot of really great advancements for Hetzel society and he thinks of things in terms of like systems and rules. And if you can learn those things, you can start to instill change. And I, I would love for him to show up in future books. And I would just be curious, you know, what his knowledge could bring to the table up against Mary for the Nile and like what it's like kind of like a game of chess, right? Yes. And mm-hmm. Mary and Kevin are kind of the big players, even though the Jedi are going to send some things. Kevin has this ability that uh, even like a living being or a droid sometimes can't comprehend. And he's just really got a knack for it. And I'm excited to see uh, if they ever communicate with each other. Imagine like some just like crazy battle and like they're communicating somehow. I don't know. I just, my mind goes places. That's Uh, a really interesting thought. You know, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But do you have any other thoughts on the Nile before we kind of get into what I think is Martian's endgame and what the future could look like for these stories and the, the shadows that loom? have any other thoughts about the structure of the Nile like I think it's really interesting and I I it it did feel a little bit like a lot like a little bit like a lot in terms of understanding the structure and what's happening with the Nile but I hope we'll get more clarity of that as these books go on and what their as their endgame specifically Martian's endgame gets revealed my final thought with the Nile though is I I can't get through this episode without mentioning wet bub oh yes yeah, Wetbub is a Gungan. Wetbub. Why does he have his nickname as Wetbub? Well, one time he came out of a battle literally covered in blood. And <laughs> what the <laughs> what the fuck? Charles Soul. <laughs> it's the best. It's the best. I don't I don't know what it is, but that that character this very side character on the bridge of one of the nile ships is just incredible uh i don't know what how that you know how that came to his mind as like i gotta write this guy but it's the worst if i guess i do mean the best rest in peace wet bub because he i think he dies with kasav in the final battle does he yeah i think so which by the way kasav i mean uh the fact that he like destroyed an entire planet Little did he know that planet was just full of people who loved revenge and justice and blood and honor and would just basically yeah. duel or poison anybody they could. <laughs> and they show up with Governor Veer being at the end. And I was just like, oh, my God, they never forgot. I thought that was pretty epic, by the way, when they came in at the end and were like, hey, hey, yeah, uh, remember us? Uh, yeah, Kasav, we're going to board you now and uh, you're not going to like it. <laughs> you're like, I'm not very nice. And I'm not going to play niceties with you. <laughs> play stupid games, Kasav. You win stupid prizes. <laughs> yeah. So this leads us to our final part here of the episode, which is what's next? A shadow looms over the High Republic era. So Chancellor So has authorized hyperspace travel again. They think that they've won. But there are some doubts over... You know, I think it was Kevin Tarr or uh, Larilia, who was the transportation secretary, who pitched the idea that maybe this isn't the end of the Nile. Maybe there's more to this. And 
You know, I got to also mention to Senator, Senator is it Noor, who's from Sereno. He's a major spokesman for the Outer Rim Territories. And the whole time he was just like, wow, wow, open up the hyper lanes, please. Uh, that's all I'll comment on that. But he's, uh, he's just annoying and complains <laughs> all the time. But uh, so that's what's going on with the Republic. Where the Nile, they have a Jedi now. We see Martian just kill Otto Blythe with the lightsaber. He's just like, oh, this yeah. guy? K- done. Yeah. I'm just like, like, okay. Crazy. And there's this really interesting discussion that happens at the end of the book between Loden Greatstorm and Martian. And uh, Martian basically says, listen, the worst is yet to come. And like, I'm about to use you because the Jedi is exactly what I needed. Uh, because he, again, he blames the Jedi for what happened to his ancestors. And he takes out this this three-handed long carved piece of uh, something. It has symbols on it, screaming faces, fire, and chains. It glows purple when it's touched. And he blames this thing specifically for what happened to his ancestors. So it's some sort of tool or ancient relic that he's recovered and he's going to use to wreak havoc, which uh, the havoc that is supposedly going to be unleashed upon the jedi is what elzar senses you want to take us through elzar's elzar's vision here to to wrap up yeah i will i will before we do that i just want to say that like this it says it you know was it looks like it was once reforged it's old it's ancient it has a history as somebody who loves relics i find relics really interesting this is exciting Moving into Elzar's vision. So we talked earlier about Elzar and Avar and um, the, you know, the ways in which they are talking to one another at the end. You're like, oh, it's so soft and good. Just say your feelings out loud and maybe you'll get somewhere. Avar leaves and everything goes to shit for Elzar. Elzar sees mutilated Jedi, things that lived in the dark, in the deep fleeing, screaming a warning or prophet at him, shearing through his consciousness. He starts to bleed um, from his nose. Like, this did not feel like an unknowable, avoidable vision of the future. It felt inevitable, certain evil horror was sweeping across the galaxy like the tide. He sees fear. He sees um, unknown. He sees the, the Jedi's greatest greatest enemy which is fear and um it's really ominous because i want elzar and avar to have a happy ending <laughs> anyway yeah. and we um, know they're getting split up too they're kind of going separate ways on different missions so yeah but this reminds me of some of the stuff what we saw in like dooku jedi lost um with what sifo Dias. Um, mm-hmm. yep. who was, was one seeing like incredibly violent visions of the future. Yes. I wonder if he um, has a similar, similar power then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is kind of, yeah, it overtakes him. Um, and he sees this knowing it's coming and, uh, <laughs> I don't want him to feel pain. <laughs> yeah. And when we go back to our, our thoughts earlier about the Nile being the, the soup salad and breadsticks. At yep. the Olive Garden. Um, whatever this is, is the uh, the whole menu, the whole menu of entrees at Olive Garden. Uh, yeah, it's the taste of Italy. Something, yeah, something is about to be unleashed 
uh and i think it might even be separate from uh whatever this glowing purple rod is that that martian has it might be connected it might be the thing that catalysts all of these other events uh, but who knows i i think when you look at a book called the rising storm as a continuation of the story we're going to learn more about what was this vision about what is martian's next steps how does bell zetafar react to loading getting captured who mm-hmm. is the monster hunter uh known as tyork tyork uh she's gonna have to hunt some monsters down that are maybe in these visions the ones that are coming out of the dark and then you have stellan Gios, who's uh you know the big the big uh the one of the big jedi names we haven't really interacted with yet so i mean there's a lot here and i'm excited to see like where we go but again the future looks bright for these stories and uh i'm a little it's really hard to speculate right because it's easy to speculate when it's a time period we know and have some context around but i seriously don't know what's next and that's actually pretty cool because i haven't really felt that way about star wars i don't i don't think it's as predictable right i don't think it's predictable i don't it's not predictable in the sense that you know the mandalorian you know which uh, what episodes are going to go where or the skywalker saga how it's going to end the sandbox is open and we're just kind of here for the ride and that's that's fun yeah and i think we're far enough away from the end of this time period the high republic that it it does feel wide open like i think we have some some vision of like what's coming in the continued first kind of wave of books like we know that we're going to get these creatures because that was something that was talked about in one of the panels that they're going to be kind of introduced in into the dark we know that they're kind of unkillable and plant-like and and all that good stuff and we know that like the Jedi are probably not going to fare so well, some of them. And we've got a lot of books coming to to explore that in. So that's really exciting as well. Yeah. Sarah, what are some of those books? We we got a ton of new reveals at the, the High Republic panel, so kick us off. All right. We've got Kevin Scott's The Rising Storm out this summer. Justina Ireland's Out of the Shadows, her first YA in the Star Wars universe coming out this summer, which includes, I believe, Wreath and Vernestra Rowe from mm-hmm. Wreath from Into the Dark, Renestra from A Test of Courage, yes. and a new character. Daniel Jose Older's Race to Crash Point Tower, which is a middle grade. We've got Kevin Scott and Rachel Stotts, Monster of Temple Peak. And we've got Justina Ireland and Shima Shinya's The Edge of Balance, which is going to be the start of a new manga series, which is so exciting. Um, the manga adaptations of uh, Lost Stars and... Um, there's another one that they've done, I believe. Legends of Luke Skywalker have been really, really cool. So I'm Rebels. They seeing... did Rebels too, I think. Oh, Rebel. Oh. Yeah. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to find it. <laughs> they did. Um, you know, have been really good. The Lost Stars one is excellent. So I'm looking forward to that as well. And then we've got something that Claudia is working on that she can't tell us about. So there's like a lot coming in the pipeline for us to dig into and really get to know this world. And, you know, despite something like um, the rising storm and out of the shadows are a bit vague, but race to crash point tower, the monster at temple peak, those kind of give us some very clear cut. Like there's going to be a monster at temple peak. They're going to race to crash point tower. You know, it gives us a a little hint of what's to come, but um, we really don't know. We don't really know. It's exciting. And Race to Crash Point Tower is going to uh, be focused on one of the other great works, which is the Republic Fair. Oh. So that'll be uh, pretty neat. But you and I have theorized 
Kevin Scott said, you know, Rising Storm is the next in the series. So when I think of that, I really do think that when you look at the phases of the High Republic, I think you and I guess there's either going to be two to three books per phase, uh, adult books like from Major Del, Del Rey, Rey. Major yeah. Del Rey releases, yeah. And uh, Claudia didn't say what she was writing next. She's the only one we don't know anything about. My best guess is she will write the next adult book after Cavan. Um, that will either be the finisher for phase one or it will be the start of phase two. I just don't know if it's going to be two or three books. I, I would think maybe mm-hmm. like a trilogy per phase would make sense to me. That makes sense to me. You know, but, you know who knows? They could be doing way more than that. Because we know phase one goes into 2021. So maybe like, you know, book number three of phase one is January. First week of January, just like Light of the Jedi. And it's like the final book written by Claudia Gray. And then we start phase mm-hmm. two, like, you know, in the summertime when Cavan's book came out. So I think that's kind of where Del Rey specifically is going. I think when we look back on all three phases of the High Republic, we're going to have like this epic nine book saga, which like, listen, I always <laughs> thought trilogies were cool for Del Rey and Star Wars publishing. But if we're talking about a nine book epic, that rivals something on like a Game of Thrones level in terms of just like the breadth of storytelling and like the scope. Uh, that is why I'm investing in the High Republic. That is why I'm here mm-hmm. reading these books. That's why we're here going on our longest episode ever <laughs> for <laughs> Four Friends of the Forest three hours oh, later. I'm so sorry, Brad. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, now that we've set the groundwork, none of our episodes will be this long again. But we're, no, I'm happy though. Like, we're here. We talked three hours about the High Republic because we love it. We love what we've read. And we want all of you to be just as passionate about it because. Like we said, very, very upfront is there's something for everybody in here. I promise you. I promise you if you give it a chance, and maybe there isn't something for you, but I, I, I would at least give it a chance because I think mm-hmm. you will at least pull some sort of redemptive qualities from it, some sort of silver lining that you will enjoy and attach yourself to. And I don't think it's necessary to read everything. I think you can read just what you want to read. And if you like a certain character, you can follow their journey throughout the high republic so much to come yeah. sarah i'm very excited about this era how are you feeling how are you feeling I'm, three hours later i'm feeling so good i can we can do the follow-up podcast right now all about avar avar and elzar um, oh my god hashtag yeah. cranstance hashtag cranstance oh my god mm-hmm. i don't want to spoil it for anybody but uh yeah once once we unleash that pandora's box we're gonna start the hashtag so that about wraps it up, though, Sarah, for our episode on Light of the Jedi. So mm-hmm. thank you for joining me for, for so long. It's crazy that we talked about it for this long, but I'm very, very happy about it. To wrap up, where can our listeners find you online? You can find me at SEHTG1 on Twitter and Instagram and um, on Goodreads and Letterboxd. I love writing reviews and talking about the books I read, so... Um... Goodreads. <laughs> That's what I'm plugging in 2021. Yes. And as for Friends of the Force, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Make sure if you're listening to this episode to share it everywhere, retweet, like it, uh, leave us a five star rating if you can. Every, anytime the podcast is shared, it brings other people into the Friends of the Force community and lets them know about our show. And it just helps us a lot with that iTunes podcast algorithm. 
You can also join our Patreon at patreon.com slash friends of the force, where if you want to hear my thoughts on the High Republic comics, uh, you'd have to subscribe over there and get more on that. Thank you to our current patrons, Adam, Anna, Cheryl, Christina, Deborah, Donnie, Elegy, Jesse, Heroes of the Galaxy, Levi, Marie Claire, Marvin, Neil, Rachel, Sarah, and T. And our newest patrons, Brian, Lindsay, and Knights of Ren. So thank you all for being Friends of the Force patrons. You are absolutely the best. And Sarah, that is it. We've made it. We've covered Light of the Jedi. (laughs) We've done it. It's good. Now we can put it on our bookshelf and wait for The Rising Storm by Kevin Scott. I can't wait. Uh, Only five more months. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But hey, hey, the next Delray novel that we're getting is Victory's Price by Alexander Freed. Okay. Um, Oh, boy. Maybe you should expect another three-hour episode on that one. Yeah, that might be that might be like close to four hours. But listen, if you really love it. If you liked this book discussion, Sarah is always my go-to for books on Friends of the Forest, as just many other episodes in general. So you should just check out some of our other episodes. If you read a book about Star Wars and you liked it, see if we covered it on the podcast. And we'll be covering all of the major publishing reveals uh, and releases going forward. So uh, stay tuned. Very exciting stuff for 2021. So I'm very excited. Sarah, thank you once again for joining me. For everybody out there, as always, thank you for listening and being a friend of the Force. And until next time, may the Force be with you always. Bye!